Well, Bob, thanks for coming on the podcast, Uncut and Real Raw. It's great to have you here, mate. Thank you for having me. Well, Bob, it's it's an honour for me to have you here on the podcast and interview you. You've been a mentor of mine for you know my entire adult life as, as training horses and a clinician. And we've known each other for quite a long time now, but I really wanted myself to dive into and the audience of your entire career. You know, you're semi-retired now, basically, as, right. as a horse trainer, but you had a, a, a really long career that that to me is really interested in the fact that I've always said that with the specialization of all the industries, the cutting, the reining, the cow horse, pleasure, etc. On one hand, it made specialization made it better in the fact that the, the individual performance of each event kind of went up. But we've also lost the all round great horsemen that you were involved in where you could do multiple events. You could train a rope horse, you could train a pleasure horse, you could train a rainer, you could train a cutter, etc. And And to be honest, you're kind of one of the last of the dying breed that, that still knew how to do all that and get it done. And not, I'm not talking about it like a local level, Bob, but on a world championship level, mm-hmm. on the highest level possible. So to me, that was always a big turn on for me that somebody could be a world champion in multiple events. That's hard to do. Yes, it is. You know what I mean? So I want to dive into that some. But let's get started here. Um, first of all, did you, did you where, where were you born and raised? Let's start there. Uh, in Northern California. Well, right below San Francisco, I was born and raised right there. Right. Around the Woodside area. Mm-hmm. What, what year were you born? 1951. 1951. Did you, were you born into a horse training kind of family, city boy? What were you? A uh, horse training family. My dad was a rodeo cowboy. My mother showed horses, and as the time went on, my mother talked my dad into showing horses. Okay. For a living? For a living, yep. yes. And he was, he was a finished carpenter also. Okay. But um, she talked him into showing horses. And, then, and what uh, kind of horses were they trying to make a living from back in those days? Uh, pleasure and rope horses mainly. He showed a few cutters. Okay. You know, but again, mainly the all round stuff again. Yes, absolutely. Now, let me ask you back when he was doing that, was the all round thing a necessity just to survive? You know, specialization probably wasn't around back then. I don't think we knew any different. Yes. You know, and I'm not going to tell you that we showed some of them in classes they should have been shown in. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, yeah. like you my were trying m- to eat, make a living, and exactly. I was one of them shown. My mother used to tell people that my favorite event was the gate opening because I'd go in anything. <laughs> if they'd let me go in it, I'd go in it. You know? That's funny. I love that. So basically, you kind of grew into horses. So they encouraged you to do the horse training as a kid. You got to ride after school, that type of stuff, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Did you hate school and academics when you knew you were going to go home and ride horses? Was school hard for you? Did you always know you wanted to be a horse trainer? Tell me about that transition. I didn't always know I wanted to be a horse trainer. I wasn't the best student in the world. Yep. I will tell you that, you know. Mainly because you didn't want to apply yourself or... You know, School was boring. It was boring. Things moved too slow for me. Yes. You know, there was things I wanted to do, and they were not on the pace of school. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So what age did you leave high school then? Oh, I went through high school, and then I uh, um, I went to college for one semester, and it was way too slow for me. You know, there was <laughs> these there were kids that were going to just stay there for 10 years. And yeah. I wanted to go make money, you yeah. know. So. Yeah, yeah. So let me, so did your parents discourage you from wanting to be a horse trainer, Bob? Did they encourage the horse training for you to do that as a career? Where did, where did that stand from a parental, parental standpoint? I don't think they ever, one way or the other. Just kind of let you make your own yeah, choice. Yeah, they kind of made me. And you know, my parents got a divorce when I was, oh, 15 or so, and yep. I left home then. 
Oh, you did? Okay. Mm -hmm. And I moved to Reno and lived with my grandparents for a while. Yep. And uh, I had I got a really good job. I worked for Reno Vulcanizing, which is uh, the Goodyear dealer for Northern Nevada. Yep. And I was a TBA man, which people don't even know what that I is no today. I have no idea, no. <laughs> it's, it's when gas stations used to be service stations. Okay. And you could go there and buy a, a pair of sunglasses or a battery or a rotor or a you know, battery, you know, whatever, yeah. you know, connectors and whatever. And I used to go and did the maintenance on these things where I'd take orders and make sure they were full, you know, and things like that. And it was a really good job. I mean, I, I, I was ahead of my time. Yeah. And one day I got up and I decided that it's not what I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, I, so you, you weren't showing, so did you no, show? No, I, I completely, I completely quit showing. Okay. Completely. But as I, a kid, very heavily involved in showing. Absolutely. Right. Maybe too heavily. Okay. Because I probably burned myself out. Right. Right. And I never got to see what the other side lived like, and I wanted to see what the other side lived like. Uh, the city kids, so to speak. Exactly. Kids that weren't horse show kids. Right. And when I moved to Reno, I grew my hair long, and I had a ponytail. And, <laughs> and when I decided that I wanted, I got up one morning, and I just decided I wanted to be a horse trainer. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I, uh, I went to my bosses. They were really neat people. How old would you have been? Uh, 20-ish. 20-ish, yep. And, uh, and I told him I had two weeks uh, paid vacation coming. Yep. I said, I'll forfeit that, but I, I need to go. Yeah. And I had a uh, 1970 Corvette. Yep. And uh, I took it down, traded in for a half-ton pickup. <laughs> I went down, got a haircut, and Monday morning I started working for Tony Amaral for $250 a month. That's it how it's done. quite a culture Shock. Yeah, culture shock. Yes. So, so Tony Amarillo was your first main... Amarillo. 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 He was your first main horse training mentor, other than your dad, probably, yeah, your absolutely, mother? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. You know, when I was young, my dad wasn't very smart, you know? Yeah. As I got older, my dad got smarter. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Everybody so, thinks that, yeah. And I, I, as I got older, I realized how much I did learn from him, you Yes. Know? Yeah, but Tony was my hero my whole so life. So how did you come across Tony? He was showing on the same circuit you were as yeah. a kid. Was he a competitor against your dad? How did mm -hmm. you even know who Tony was? Uh, I knew him. I think I knew him all my life, really, because he showed with my dad and yeah. stuff. And uh, he was always one of, he treated the kids really good. Yeah. Like he'd go give us, you know, uh, what was his name? I got to think about it. I'm having a senior moment here. Um, Harry Rose Jr. and I ran around together, and we'd go to the show, and we'd you know go over to Tony's, and he'd go, well, if you clean these stalls, I'll give you ten bucks. You know? Yeah. So we'd clean a stall, and he he was just giving us ten bucks. He yeah. didn't really want the stall yeah. cleaned. And uh, so, you know, that's how I got to know him. He was kind of my hero, and I would stay with him during summer times. Yeah. I would go and stay with Skid, his wife, and himself, and uh, work for him during summer times. And then when I, he called me, and I lived in Reno, and he asked me if I wanted to go to work there. And uh, Benny Catron was just getting ready to leave mm -hmm. and go out on his own, and I went to work there Monday morning. So what kind of horses was Tony training in those days? Everything. Rope horses, pleasure horses. Junk. Junk. Lots anything. of junk. Yeah. And he would, he would take anything and he'd keep it as long as people wanted to pay the bill. Right. And right. I, that's one thing I learned that I didn't want to do, you know. Mm -hmm. If they weren't a good horse, I didn't want. I didn't want to keep. Get them. rid of them, even yeah. if the owner wanted to keep it in training. Right. Don't don't waste your time mm -hmm. and their money. But Tony rode a lot of ranch horses, or or we rode a lot of ranch horses that Tony got paid for. Yep, yep. And um, 
And you know, he lived in that country. There's a lot of ranchers around. So where there where was he training horses out of that you were at? Where it was right um, uh, right west of Stockton, out okay, in California. Middle, yeah, out in the middle of nowhere there. So was Tony probably the one of the first or the main guys in California that was a professional horseman trying to really make money at doing this? Was he shown on a national level, just locally in California? You know, set the stage a little bit for where he was in his career when you and him got together. You know, Tony was, Tony, if he ever taught me anything, it was how to make money and how to hustle. Yes. He was a great salesman. He had it figured out. Um, he, he showed on a, a national level. Yep. The World Show was just starting when I worked for the him. The IQHA World Show. Yes, it was yep. in Kentucky the first couple Holy years. Oh, shit me, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And uh, he went, he won the Junior Cow Horse at the first World Show. And I think it had three in it, yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. But, uh, but he. Um, so the main lessons—that's what I want to get at. What are the main takeaway lessons from that time? Sounds like you got a lot of riding on horses. Oh yeah. So you got a lot of experience. Oh yeah. What were some of the other major lessons from him that you got at that age? I learned how to get my ass chewed. Yeah. <laughs> and take it well. <laughs> well, you didn't have any choice. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so, uh, um, you know, but. Tony had it figured out. He would get on an airplane and he would go to Wyoming. I'll just use Wyoming. Yeah. And he would buy six head of ranch gildings. And instead of having them shipped out to California, he'd go buy a truck and trailer, mm -hmm. a used truck and trailer. Then he'd find somebody there to pay to drive it to California. Well, he'd get all his ranch horses or his horses he bought out to California. And then when he got them there, he'd sell the truck and trailer. Well, I mean, that was pretty smart business. Yeah, you know, and he, he was he was pretty money minded. He knew how to make very money. much so. He he knew how to make money yeah. really well. Was he good at keeping it? Yeah, I think he was okay. pretty good at keeping. His wife was good at keeping it. Okay, well, yeah. somebody in the family was. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. I, I because that's a big deal. Like a lot of people can make a lot of money, but if they manage it poorly right. or spend it poorly or don't keep an eye on it, it can disappear pretty damn quick. Mm -hmm. So you got a lot of experience riding a lot of junk, a lot of horses, but you you got it. You got your first. It sounds like you got your first insight to how to hustle, make some deals, make money, etc. Other than just riding a horse. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I did. Uh, I mean, he. Uh, he taught me how to buy and sell and, you know, what to look for and what not to look for and mm -hmm. things like that, you know, and... Uh, was there it, other people there as as young apprentices when you yeah, were there? Yeah, there was. Uh, Rod Weimers was there that is passed on mm -hmm. now. Billy Arthur that won the snaffle bit was there yep. when I was there. Yeah. And uh, we So all, he had a fair size operation? Oh yeah, it was a good operation. Like you know. 40, 50 horses in training by the sounds of it? Probably. Yeah. 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 How many years were you there, Bob? Uh, I think I was there four years. Okay. So you're probably around 24, 25. Probably. Uh, and where was your next move after that? I went to work for my dad in Eugene, Oregon. Okay. And Doing I, the same thing, just training horses there, rope horses? Yeah, mainly. Yes? Yeah, mainly mm -hmm. rope horses, you know. And, and I think my dad's rope horses really, I mean, he trained some really good rope horses. But they were terrible to ride. They just, you know, it took you the whole end of the arena to turn around and go back to the chute. So not a lot of handle on them. Yeah. They could and come I, out I, of a box, they mm -hmm. could write and rope, but they right. didn't have handle on them. And I think that's what drove me to ride rainers and cow horses. Mm -hmm. You know, I loved the, the power steering on them. Yes. You know, it's kind of like getting off an old D9, you know, Ford tractor and mm. jumping on a, you know, a Corvette or something. Yeah. It's, that's the difference in riding them. And uh, so you went and worked for your dad. How long did that last? Oh, a year and a half or year something like half. that. Then I, I got a job in Sisters, Oregon at Treetop Railway Company. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, I worked up there as a trainer for a couple years. Okay. And uh, same thing, all round horses. Yeah, all round horses. Yeah. Did, uh, now tell me about the level of stock for that. So that was your. It sounds like that was your first major paying job after Tony. Really, that you're kind of you're the boss where yes. you're getting to pick what to ride. Right. You're getting to pick what to show. Mm -hmm. So you're around 28, 29 by this stage somewhere. Well, maybe a little less. 26. A little less than that. Okay. Probably 26. So how'd you find that customer and get that job? You saw you at a horse show. How'd that happen? I don't even remember to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. I think I knew that I knew the gal that was working for him, and she told me they wanted to hire somebody. Okay. And did they let you go buy the stock you wanted? No, they owned a lot of stock. Good stock? Uh, yes and no. Yes. Some of it was. Yeah. And uh, they had they had some really nice horses, you know. Yep. And I showed them and stuff, and and I just uh, I didn't stay there a long time. I stood there stayed there probably a year. Yep. And. They drank a lot. Yeah. And they would call me. I'd pull in from a horse show. This was in Sisters, so you had to come up that mountain mm -hmm. out of the valley most of the time. And they would uh, they'd call me at 2 o'clock in the morning. They could see their house sat up on a hill. Yeah. And they could see me pull in with the rig. And I had a big semi that we had. And uh, so by the time I got home, I was wore out because yeah. that semi was really slow up those mountains. Yeah. And they'd call me and go, you got to come up here right away. Well. I'd think, you know, they could see me putting the horses away. And I'd think, oh my God, I gotta get up there, something's wrong. Well, they'd been playing cards and drinking, they wanted me to uh, come up and drink with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that got really old really quick, yes. you know. Uh, yeah. And they were very nice people, they treated me very good. Yes. And uh, when that was done, I decided to go out on my own, and anybody in their right mind would not have done it. Yes. I had a because I, time means everything for a young trainer now, isn't it? When you're a young yes. apprentice now, assistant trainer, that to me is the is the most crucial part of your career almost is if you fuck that timing up and you leave too early or you leave too late or you don't get that timing right it can set you back several years yes and and i mean like i was i'm not gonna say i was stupid because it worked yes but if i had to do it again i probably would have done it differently yes you know? i mean i what I, would you have done we'll get back to what you did but if you could go back now it, you know, to, to the advice to Bob Avler at that exact stage, would you have said, go work for somebody else? What, what do you think you would have told yourself? I probably would have waited a little longer or I would have gone and worked for somebody else, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, but like I say, it worked. Yes. You know? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I had a half ton pickup that with blown up motor in it. Yep. I didn't own a horse trailer. Yeah. I had one gilding I roped on. I had a, two saddles, a snaffle bit and a hackamore bit. I think one bridle, and yeah. I decided I was going to be out on my own, you know, which is stupid, <laughs> you know. Um, so I moved back to the valley there in right outside of you, or right side outside of uh, Portland. Yeah. And um, Rob Steinmetz and I, a friend of mine up there, we rented a place together, and it had eight stalls on one side and eight stalls on their other, and we had a 40 by 60 indoor, that was our indoor arena. 40 foot by 60 foot, okay. Mm -hmm. And you gotta remember, I live in Oregon, it rains yeah. all the time. Yeah, it know? pretty much rains from November through April. All right, so that's where I decided to set up shop, and we rented a apartment together, and there was a truck driver friend of ours, and he rented part of it, and he was never there, so it was great, because it was a two bedroom apartment. Mm. And, uh, just so, taking in anything you could get paid to do. Start colts, rope a donkey. You, you're just trying to eat, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And I didn't eat really well for the first year. Yeah. So mm -hmm. your quality of stock 
went backwards at that point of your career, didn't yes, you? You went did. from the other job with the people that were partying and had some good stock mm -hmm. to basically starting shitters again. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. That would have been a little tough to handle. Yeah, it was. Um, but, you know, you do what you do. You got to do what you got to do. So how did you make the next move after that, mate? Well, uh, Or did you build it up? What happened in that, that part of your life? I had some customers that uh, I trained their girls and they were really good customers. They loaned me a truck, they loaned me a trailer, yeah. you know. Helped get, you get a little start. Get started, yeah. And I showed, they had a gilding that I showed for them, I showed him in the Rainins. And uh, he was really pretty cool. I showed him in the cow horse too. But he, uh, his name was Chugwater. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to take him to the cow palace and they couldn't afford to take him. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I was going out with Christy at the time, and her grandfather told me that if I would drive his motorhome and four-horse trailer down, he'd haul the horse down for nothing, you know, to the cow palace. So I did that, and I won the cow palace the senior reigning on him. And all my, all and that's, my... And then uh, just help me back up a little bit, because I'm not familiar with that. I know the what cow the palace. cow palace is, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that familiar with how big a deal the cow palace is. And this, uh, you know, what years are we talking now? 80... 70, late 70s, what are we talking here? Probably late, uh, we don't even late 70s, probably the mid 70s. Mid 70s, yeah. so the Cow Palace, for people who don't know, is a pretty big deal in California. Very big deal, it was kind of like the Congress is for the East Coast. You know? Okay, so it, it was in, very, in layman's terms, it'd be, the it'd be the West Coast Congress, exactly. so to speak. Exactly, And um, First time showing there? Uh, as an adult. Yeah, yes. as an adult. I showed there as a kid, and I won yeah. the cutting there as a kid and stuff. But, uh, I got, I won the senior reign in there, and I mean, all my peers were there. Tony was in there, you know, Harry Rose was in there. I mean, all all the guys that I looked up to when I was a little kid yeah. were in there. So it was a pretty big win, yeah. you know. And f he was really the first one that gave me a kick start. That and horse. I, that horse was, yes. And, and it was funny because that horse would buck me off about twice a week the whole time. You know? You'd like Always really bronchi. buck you off? Oh, yeah. Like hit the ground, buck not you just, off. Not just kick up its back legs, oh, but no, fucking no. try to get you We're on the ground. We're talking buck you off, yeah. <laughs> but, I, you know, I mean, I had probably three horses in training, so I had a lot of time. So you just rode the shit out of I him. I just rode the shit out of him, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it was uh, it was good, you know. And then from there on, I I got a, a gilding. So what, some, from, one that, from that win, did you get some better customers? You get yes. some better horses? Yes. So that's a pivotal part in any trainer's career. If you can win or be competitive, mm -hmm. the better horses and better customers start coming along. Would right. you agree or disagree? No, I agree 100%. And that was something you were desperately needing. Oh, desperately, yeah. I got, I got a gilding in after that from Canada named Highline Gentry. Mm -hmm. And he was beautiful. Great, big, beautiful halter horse. Did the pleasure, did the trail, stuff like that. Yeah. And I got him to get I think they sent him to me to get his five roping points because I did a lot of that when I was mm -hmm. young. Finish AQHA champions. Yeah. And I got his five um, roping points and he was kind of a klutz. Mm. He fell on me one day and broke my hand mm. and you know, stuff like that. But he was, he did really good for me. I mean, I won a lot on him. In what events? Uh, the halter, the pleasure, the trail and roping. Okay. And, uh, and so once again, I had all around horses. I didn't know any different. Yes. I didn't know there was a different way to do it. Yeah. And uh, so I, uh, I had him and after I had him, uh, Andy Reese called me and he wanted to send me Major Bonanza. Okay. And Major Bonanza was my first really big gun. Yes. I mean, he was the one that 
that the whole nation looked at, you know. And, yeah. And I can remember laughing because Andy. So said, how old was that horse when you got it? Uh, three, I think. So did he let you go buy it or he already owned no, it? No, he owned it. He was a halter horse being shown up there. Okay. So he's found you as a young trainer and says, I want you to take this horse on. So right. looking back on it, he must have had a lot of trust in you, Bob, or a lot of ignorance or trust or what? You know what I mean? He, he could have picked other trainers, correct? He yeah, could have picked could have. other trainers, but sure. for something, he saw something in you. Yeah. Uh, had you known him a long time? Built I've a known him for quite a while. Yeah. You know, known, and he sent him to me, and uh, he wanted me to make a cutter out of him. I laughed. I thought, you know, I'll be lucky if I get his roping points. Yes. Know? Well, I started showing him and stuff, and he got we got all his pleasure points, and he he won at Halter a lot. Yeah. I mean, he was grand champion stallion. Pretty horse. Yeah, really pretty horse. And I got his pleasure points, and he turned in a pretty good pleasure horse. And, so I decided I was going to start stopping him a little bit and doing things like that. Well, my God, he could he was gigantic stopper. I mean, gigantic, you know. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll let him look at a cow. Well, he was very cowy. And it just shocked the hell out of me. Yeah. I mean, I, Cause it most shocked of that, everybody. Most of those halter horses, historically, as a general, you know, not every one, of course, but as a general blanket statement, they're kind of pigs, aren't they, Bob? They're bad minded some bitches. You know, they're not meant to be ridden. They're meant to be basically trophies that you lead around they're not meant to have trainable minds is that a right or wrong statement in your your opinion oh i think it's or back of... then was it better back then and it's got worse since you know were the halter horses back in that day as as bad-minded as what i think a lot of them are today i don't know if they were bad-minded then they were just not as specialized then as they right. are now yeah now they're breeding them so big and so heavy yeah and stuff there's you know I think a lot of the halter guys like like to think they can ride them, mm -hmm. but very few of them can be rode. And and if you can ride them, they can't really do a lot. Yeah, know? but to, they're they're art now. That's what they yes, it's a trophy. Exactly. Some of the worst-minded horses I've ever had in my career have really been modern halter horse bloodlines. Mm -hmm. They're just bad-tempered some bitches. Yeah. You know, they don't want to be trainable. They don't want to get along. Now, were they pretty? Absolutely. Were mm -hmm. they beautiful head, beautiful confirmation? Yes, absolutely. But they sure as shit didn't want you to tell them what to do. Yeah. They they sure as shit didn't want to be workhorses. You know what I mean? So I'm just trying to set the pace because it sounds like you're doing a lot of shit with a quote-unquote halter horse oh. that he's not meant to really do, but he's doing it. Yeah. And I rode a lot of halter horses then. I mean, that's what I did. I yeah. got... Their extra five points and stuff, but Major was—he was something different, you know. He was—he I mean, shocked me. Yes. And I think he shocked almost everybody, you know. Yeah. I, one of the very first times I showed him in the cow horse was to Greg Whalen, mm -hmm. and I went to Boise, Idaho, and showed up there, and he made him reserve grand at halter, and I was kind of a little pissed about it, but mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I kind of went, okay, you know, whatever, and um, then I showed him in the cow horse. And this horse would stop so hard, I would have to wrap him up over his hocks. And you, we didn't have hawk boots then. So what were you wrapping him with? Oh, anything I could get to stay on him. You know, <laughs> I put leg wraps on him and tape him up there and stuff. Yeah. And you know, it's and I mean, he would just bloody his hocks up. True. I mean, oh yeah, he was he was cool. And I showed him to Greg that day, and Greg walked up to me. I remember after that, and he says he will never be reserved grand under me again. <laughs> you know, he just thought he was so cool and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, so that was. So what did that horse do for your career, Bob? From from a horse training standpoint, confidence standpoint, and then from a business standpoint, you know, what other horses did you get in, etc. So let's start with a horse training standpoint. You're a young trainer. You're finding your way. 
you know, you're out on your own. What did he do for you that changed, if anything, changed any of your training, changed your confidence? What did he do for you? He probably gave me a lot of confidence, you know. Yeah. I mean, I had, there was no way I thought this was going to work. Yeah. You know, and or not work the way they wanted it to yes. work. Well, it did, and it was better than they thought. Yes. And, uh, and it probably gave me a lot of confidence and stuff. And then I turned around and sold him for Andy and Carol. I sold half of him mm -hmm. for Andy and Carol for half a million dollars. And this is like late in 75 or early in 76. That's an insane amount of money back then. Yes, it? it is. For a half a horse, 500,000. Yes. And, uh, That'd be like a couple of million today, really. Yeah, exactly. In horse flesh numbers. Exactly. You know. That's a lot. Yeah, and there's not a lot of them to sell for a couple of million. No, know? no. But, uh, but anyway, uh, and then I, I started riding. There was they had bred him some up in Canada before they sent him to me, and there was a couple of his foals up there, and I went and got them, some of them, started riding them. And I, you know, I, I took Major to the World Show, and I drew a bad cow, and at the time you couldn't get another cow. And um, and I won the honor roll with him, but it was I wanted to win the world with him, yeah. you know. And in I, the cow horse. In the cow horse, and I did I didn't win the world with yeah. him. But um, then I got uh, one of his foals, major investment, and he was an all-around horse. He did everything, and he did it shockingly good. Mm -hmm. um, and he was my first world champion. And I won it in the cutting. In the cutting, your first yes. world, IQHA right. World Championship. And I took him to the World Show in 81. And he uh, he was first in the cutting, second in the reigning, and third in the pleasure. Yeah. So it was pretty, you know, it's pretty different. Yes. And that's the year I met Doug Carpenter. Okay. And he, Doug won it that day. And he, Doug told, told the story that, that he's sitting out there and they're calling him off and he's looking there and he goes, here's this guy that's riding this horse that just wins the cut in the class before. And it was the class before I won the cutting. You shouldn't. And he goes, I kept looking down there and they kept calling horses out and he's still there. And he says, I keep looking down there and he's still there. And he says, they get up to the last three and this crazy son of a bitch is still there. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, oh, he laughed about it and stuff. And I ended up third in the pleasure, you know, and stuff. And Doug won it that yeah. year, you know. Yeah. And um, so it was... That was my first world champion, you know, and I mean, it was it was a pretty big kick. Did you get to start him from the beginning? Yes. Though? Yes. In fact, I picked him out of three colts up in Langley, British Columbia, and I went to Andy and Carol's place, and there was three stud colts out in the field, and they were loping across the field, and he was the one way behind, mm. and he was really a good loper, and I said, I want that one. Right. I don't want the one leading the pack. I want the one behind the pack. Mm -hmm. What did you see in him that, that tripped your trigger so much? You know, he he was the, I don't know if I want to say he was the run of the litter, but the other ones bossed him around, uh -huh. and I liked that. Mm -hmm. I didn't want the stud that thought he was a stud. You I wanted wanted something more submissive. Yes, and that's what I saw in him, and he was really a good loper, a real good mover, so I liked that, and uh, so I picked him, and that was how I got him, you know. Okay. So as you, so when you win that first AQHA World Championship, what did that do for your career? Did you get better horses, better customers? Did it was it a big pivotal moment or not really? Yeah, it was. I mean, my my career started going up right then. Right. I mean, I started getting better horses. So where are you customers. training out of by this stage? Uh, Yamhill, Oregon. Okay, so you'd bought your own place. You got married. No, I, no I, not yet. Okay. Okay, but I was training out of Christie's. BJ's mother's place. Yes. Her grandfather, her yes. grandfather's place. And uh, and then I bought 45 acres right down the road from there and mm -hmm. started building my own place, you know, as it was going. 
Yeah. And when I got it well enough done that I could move up there, I moved up there. Okay. So. And basically, it's just kind of stayed in Oregon because that's where family was, etc. That was the main reason you stayed there? Or was it a quarter horse hub? Was it a lot of money there? You know what I'm trying to say? Like, what was that, other than family, was that a pivotal part to stay there? Was AQHA real big? Yeah, it was really big, you know. Um, yeah, I think I stayed there, you know, a lot of family there yeah. and stuff. Mm -hmm. My dad lives, lived uh, two hours south of me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I stayed there, you know, and yeah. it was, uh, Oregon was great to me. It mm -hmm. was very, very good for my career. Yeah. Um, I have no complaints about it at all. Yeah. So at this stage, you're getting ready, you're building on your own place. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you've had two really good horses that, that have kind of elevated your show career. Exactly. Are people now having confidence in you to go buy the stock or are you getting the good horses from them sending them? A bit of both? What, both. A bit of both? Yeah, both. You know, I was buying a few really good ones. Uh, you know, I never bought that many horses. I rode what people sent me mainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was getting better horses sent to me. Yes, you know? better quality horses. Right, and uh, I think John Fournier started sending me horses then. And one of them was Doc's Missy Command. Mm -hmm. And she was the first one I, I won big on at the Snaffle Bit. She was reserve champion at the Snaffle Bit. And, uh, you know, she was a, a great mare, yeah. you know. But, uh, so when did you start showing at the Snaffle Bit Futurity then? What year did you say, I'm going to go do this? Uh, roughly er, early 80s early, early 80s, 80s. Yeah. okay mm -hmm. who well, was now now 81 i showed uh the major leaguer there and i was third or fourth on him or something like that so i, I might have been might have been 80ish okay I showed my first one there okay and was the snaffle bit pretty popular back then was it taken very, off yes very much so okay it was some of the biggest like i judged it in i think 86 and there had over 300 entries there, you know, so it okay. was really big. Good it, crowds. It, yeah. Oh, yes. It was, it was very big, you know. Mm -hmm. It was in the, uh, it wasn't at the Coliseum that you know in Reno. Yeah. It was at the convention center down in the south of Reno. And, uh, I mean, they would have uh, cocktail waitresses walking through the stands. Mm -hmm. and, you know, they bring the judges in in a limo and tuxes. And it was a production. It was a production, yeah. It, it actually went downhill after that for a while and mm -hmm. you know now it's back up again yes but um yeah but i know that uh the first year i won it it paid thirty five thousand dollars to win it and uh and they gave a ring a beautiful ring and i went out to dinner with one of my customers and they asked me they said if you had to choose would you choose the ring and the buckle or the thirty-five thousand? And I said I'd take the ring and the buckle. I can make another thirty-five thousand. Know? <laughs> I don't know if I ever can win this again. Yeah, so. yeah, that's anyway. pretty cool. Yeah. So at this point, are you trying to specialize more in the cow horses, or you're still doing everything that walked in the door to try to make a living? You know, you're still doing rope horses. You know, it, 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 give me a feel for what the business model is. Uh, I was still doing everything. Mm -hmm. You know, I was doing everything, and I didn't take a lot of snaffle bit horses yet. Um, were people wanting to have a horse just trained specifically for the cow horse or was it an afterthought? You know, we want to do this with it, yeah. but if that doesn't work, we'll do this. Yeah, they, not a lot of people wanted just an alphabet horses, but they were getting there at that time. Yeah. You know? And uh, I was the one that had to kind of feed that into it if I wanted to go show one there. You know? Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. So you finish your place in Oregon. 
got that built? How many stalls you build? What did you try to get done? I had about 30 stalls. I had indoor arena, you know. I had a beautiful home up on the hill. Mm -hmm. uh, nice outdoor arena, you know, and it was all done in white vinyl fencing and stuff. And right. It was very pretty, you know. Yeah. And everybody used to say how pretty it was, and I'd tell them because it rains all the time. That's yeah. why it's pretty. You know? <laughs> That's a good point. So, so you know, it sounds like the, the better horses you got gave you a better opportunity to go show, go win. The more you could win, you know, it was a, it was a cycle. You're getting better horses to pick from, etc. So, you know, even back then, it was the stock's everything. If you don't have the stock, you're in some trouble. Exactly. You, you know what I mean? Um, so... What other great horses can you pick out in your mind that you think were pivotal to your career being what it was that were either big game changes for you in learning something as a horseman or your career? Well, I had a horse named Smoke Moki. We won the JD Eights and I won the Super Horse on. Okay. And that was, it, at one time, the Super Horse was really a big deal, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and the Super Horse, for people who don't understand, just explain what that is. The Super Horse is the all-around horse of the World Show. Okay, IQHA World yes, Show. Yes, and you have to show in at least three events. And Smokamoki was a bay gelding that was not real pretty, uh, but he was really a good horse, you know. I mean, he was just a bay gelding. He looked like someone's ranch horse. Right. But we did all three roping events. We did the rein in and we did the cow horse on him. And he... Um, and you trained him? Yes. And I, I think he's still the only horse that has won that, that's won as much at that as he did. Okay. He was a world champion in three events and a reserve world champion in two. Okay. So, I mean, that's almost impossible. And he do. was a gelding, too. And he was a gelding, too, yeah. So, w would you say back in those days, winning the Super Horse Championship at the World Show is almost like the prestige of the world's greatest horseman now? Yeah, I think it you was. You know, it yeah, had that one prestige yes, to it. Yes, it did at one time. Like, mm -hmm. if, you ask, if you ask people in the cow horse industry, would you, if it, you're an owner, do you want to own the fertility champion or do you want to own the horse that won the world's greatest horseman? Most people and trainers would say, I'd rather win the world's greatest horseman exactly. than win the fertility. Right. So, I'm, I'm just trying to get an idea. That mm -hmm. Super Horse deal was it kind was of that, that big. for that era. It was that big. Lot big entries, horses all over the country. Yeah, from everywhere. And you know, we didn't win it the first year we showed him. And it was interesting because a bunch of magazines did an article on it. We went to Chisholm's, yeah. which is a bar yeah. in Oklahoma City, when it was over with. And the people that owned him uh, were from Anchorage, Alaska. And we went in there, JD and uh, Kim, their daughter, and the people that owned him. And we made out a blueprint on how to win the Super Horse. And they ran a bunch of articles about the blueprint on how mm -hmm. to win the Super Horse. And we did it. Yeah. You know, and it's a pretty ballsy thing. Yeah. Promoting that and going, hey. Yeah. You yeah. know, oh, this yeah. is what we're going to do. And we've drawn a, a map on how to do it. And then you actually followed through. And then we did it, you know. Yeah. So there was a lot of pressure into it. But it, it worked and it was yeah. great. And, you know, J.D. and I became great friends over that. And we, uh, we and he specialized in the roping, doesn't he? Yes. Yes, and I'm going to have him on the podcast right. here pretty soon. He was the youngest. I think he's still the youngest person to ever go to the national finals of the roping, yeah. or in anything. Yeah. And he went there with his dad, and uh, you know we got to be really good friends, and and we showed a lot of horses together and stuff, and uh, you know I was in his corner, he was in my corner, whatever we needed to do, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, at the time we had the lazy eater or beck and call. Yeah. So we had the big barn up on the hill across from the lazy big arena mm -hmm. you know and we'd go out there at night and rope and stuff like that and work cattle and then we'd haul back into the world show you know and yeah show so was the aqha world show um 
Was that a big kind of part of your business model to go show there every year? That's where you're getting new customers from. I suppose what I'm asking is, you, this is, is it, well, the reign of fertility is still there. Like it's meaning that that's going on, the cutting fertility is going on, the snaffle bit, but it sounds like the AQHA World Show is a big stage for you to, to be seen there, doing well, et cetera. Yes, absolutely. At that time, the AQHA World Show was the biggest event we went to. Yes. I mean, it was gigantic. Um, you know, the women would come in there for the evening performances and minks and stuff. Yeah. I mean, it was really cool. It was really cool. Dude. I've seen some photos, black and white photos, where the stands in Oklahoma City mm -hmm. are just full. Exactly. You don't necessarily see that anymore, no, but don't. it was full, packed. But you couldn't stay home and watch it on TV. Either, yes. You know, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was, we look forward to it all year long. I mean, we couldn't wait to get there, mm -hmm. you know. So. Yeah. So tell me about the transition then. So you're really doing all round, all round horses. And I remember you, you know, I remember reading about you in the magazines. I got involved in the performance horses from a, uh, you know, a fan standpoint around 1992 when Boominick won the reign of paternity with Brett Stone. And, and I did not know at the time that you had a lot to do with that as well. Tell us, because that's kind of where I kind of started following you on was kind of 1992 onwards when I became an NRHA ma member and getting the magazine and the cow horse magazine and all that kind of stuff. You know, to me, Boominick was a big horse, a horse that changed the game, in, at least in the reining industry for sure. And where the old style was the East Coast, nose poked out, head up in the air, kind of Bill Horn uh, look. And not sure. to say that's a bad look, but yeah, that was no, the look. It was just different. It was just different. For that time, it was working. And then in 1992, Boominick walked in, bridled up, you know, collected up, and, and not only collected up, but just a physical freak, the way he stopped, mm. the way he turned, the way he did shit made the East Coast look look kind of um, boring, you know what I mean? Yeah. So tell us, a lot of people probably don't know how you were involved with that horse, Boominick, and, and how, what was your part of that horse's career? Because he, he changed NRHA, whether people want to admit it or not, that horse changed an entire style from mm -hmm. 1992 onwards. Would you agree or disagree with oh, that I statement? agree 100%. That yeah. horse literally changed the whole National Reining Horse Association look and feel. Mm -hmm. And there's been other horses since then that have made big impacts on that sport, but that horse right. really made a big change. So how yeah. did, did Boominick come into your life? Well, I was judging a horse show at the Ward Ranch. <clears throat> and in they California. Had, yes, in California. And they had a horse sale going on there at the same time. And so Doug Carpenter flew out. We were buying and selling horses together and stuff. Right. And Doug flew out and went down there with me. So while I was judging, he was walking around looking at colts and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so he came up and we spent some time walking around looking at him. And we decided there was three colts in there we liked. So we went to Greg Ward that owned the ranch and raised all the colts. And Greg was a pretty good friend of mine, so I asked him his opinion. I said, Greg, these are the colts we like. Which one do you like the best? And he kind of looked around and he said, come on with me. And we walked behind his barns and there was an old bullpen there, you know, yeah. the ones that went up like that. Yep. And uh, he brought Boomernick in there and he says, here, go ride him. And Doug talks about it, you know, Greg's horses were if they did what Greg wanted them to when he was on them, he could care less what they did on the ground. Right. Like he'd go to get on one and they'd run off. This was Pony Express style and drive, <laughs> drives me nuts this very day, you yeah. know? And um, so I got on Boomernick in the round pin and, and Doug tells the story about, I just melted with him, 
they, we just melted together, you know? Yeah. And so we both fell in love with him. He was number one in the How set. much rod had he had when you got on him? Um, three or four months, okay. something like that. Right. It was a two-year-old. Yep. And uh, so he, uh, he was number one in the sale, yeah. lot number one. And Doug told me, he says, why don't you get away from me? Because everybody knows you. Yeah. And he says, nobody knows who I am. And he says, I'll buy him. And I yeah. said, okay. I said, okay, I got $5,000. That's all I've got. <laughs> I said, okay. So he pays $10,600 for him. I said, Doug, I don't have the other $300. Yeah. I mean, I didn't. I, yeah. That's all the money I had. And he laughed at me. He goes, don't worry, but we'll take care of it. Yeah. <laughs> no, he yeah. laughed. He thought that was funnier than yeah. And so we bought him. I took him home. And Todd Bergen worked for me at the time. And Todd and I both rode him. And, we, you know, he was... I used to tell people he was kind of like strapping your ass to a rocket ship. Mm -hmm. You know, you didn't know where he was going to go, but you knew it was going to be really cool along the way. Yeah. You know? So what was he being trained for, just to resell, or you were going to go show him? No, I was going to go show him. So you and Doug own him, and you're going to go show him. What are you going to go show him in? Uh, he was entered the snaffle bit and the rain and fraternity. Both? Yes, both. And then uh, I was, uh, Brett Stone wanted to buy him for uh, a gal down there. Yeah. And uh, so I told him, the deal is, I get to show him this year, and you can have him next year, you know, if I sell him. Yeah. yeah it's great, great. Well, Brett wasn't quite that honest with me at the right, time, you know. Right, and So, he so what happened? They bought the horse, yeah, and he, the horse left? He sent the truck and trailer up to get him, I think, uh, late in September, because I was getting ready to take him to the snaffle bit. And a van pulled in and picked him up, and they said, "Here's the paperwork. We're getting picking up the horse." And so I had, you're in shock. Oh, I was I was having a meltdown. Yeah, I just had a meltdown. Because you know. you know this is this is what a lot of people don't understand. I don't think kind of owners, trainers pour their heart and soul into these horses. Absolutely. When you've got a great horse, it's fucking family. You're thinking about it 24/7. You're out there seven days a week. You invested your life into this horse, yes. and when somebody jerks that some bitch out of your barn, mm -hmm. that that's like taking one of your kids and just giving it away to somebody else. Oh yeah, it, it's pretty. It's it's emotional because you've you've got your career's riding on it. Especially a young trainer, when you're looking for that big win, mm -hmm. you're looking for that next career jump. That horse has got to get you there. Oh yeah. So the yeah, last absolutely. thing you want that damn thing doing is going down the road. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So Very I can true. imagine it was probably gut wrenching. Yeah, it really was. You know, and I mean, I was I was in shock. Yeah. You know, and uh, so the horse <clears throat> leaves. The horse about leaves. six weeks before the the rain and fraternity. Yes. So I took and uh, I had an entry at the snaffle bit, and I took a mare named Mist and Smoke, and I wasn't planning on taking her there, but I took her there because I was, yeah. I, I wanted something to show there, you know, and, and I ended up placing the top 10 on her, you know, and yeah, stuff, yeah, and yeah. she turned out to be a great mare. And, Good. And well, then, I'll tell you what, let's hold it right there. We're going to we're gonna take a little break here, set some new cameras, but I want to come back specifically where he hasn't shown at the Reign of Futurity yet. Nobody really knows how great this horse is. He's mm -hmm. kind of been under wraps, correct? Mm -hmm. And we're about to unveil, unveil this horse to the whole world. And I want to pick it up right there. Okay. Right, let's get a cocktail, mate. How do you know what it takes to become successful? Talk to someone who's done it. Clinton Anderson became a multimillionaire by leveraging his passion for horse training into a global brand and media empire, starting with nothing but the change in his pocket and the will to succeed. In doing so, he revolutionized an industry and became a celebrity. 
Now, you can put his experience and advice to work for your business. With Clinton Anderson's Business Consultancy, you can tap into Clinton's unique perspective, hear his straight talk, and get his no-nonsense advice. Just imagine yourself armed with Clinton's hard-earned knowledge and entrepreneurial spirit. So whether you own a ranch or any sort of business at all, we invite you to discover the transformative power of Clinton Anderson's leadership and innovation in your business. Call 1-888-287-7432 to take your business to the next level today. So, Bob, before the break, we were talking about Boominick. So right. nobody knows of Boominick other than, you know, you and Todd Bergen at the barn, handful of people, you and Doug. Right. And, you know, you've had your gut pulled out from underneath you because you don't get to show this horse. And this mm -hmm. horse could have been a game changer. Well, he was a game changer, let's face it. He was it. a game he changer, was game yes. changer. So he goes to the reign of fraternity with Brett and just kind of smokes him, really. From what I remember, he won the first go round. I thought, or uh, I don't maybe remember, it was the but second. He, but he was a he was a superstar from the beginning. From what I remember, okay. people were in shock. Yes, when he, saw him. he really was were. doing shit that horses hadn't done before. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, and you know everybody, and I kind of laugh because I was in the pleasure industry, so I know what a good mover is. Yes. And you, people go, oh, he just looks just like a pleasure horse. Well, he didn't look like a pleasure horse. Mm -hmm. The only thing that made him look like a pleasure horse, he was really low necked you know, and stuff, but his stride was about that long. It was, wasn't it? Yeah, yes. short. And, you know, Pleasure Horse is not that long, yeah. but when he would run, he would look like he was going three times as fast as he was really going because his stride was so short, yeah. you know? And I, he taught me a great lesson just by watching him uh, that, you know, if you get a longer strided horse, you got to go faster to make him look the same way. Yeah. So a shorter strided horse basically looks better going the same speed because they look faster. Mm -hmm. And that's Boomernick was that way, you know. And mm -hmm. uh, good-minded horse. Uh, yeah, feely. He's obviously very feely. Oh boy. But like to be trained. Yeah. Yeah. He was. He was really a good horse. I mean, yeah. he was. Yeah. You know, you, I can remember you can lead him on the ground and he would jog right next to you. Yeah. He. And it was easier for him to jog next to you than it was for him to walk. Yeah. You know, yeah. and he yeah. was so short-strided, he'd just do this. Yeah. You know. But, yeah. And he was. He was. He was pretty cool, you know. Well, that horse obviously won the 1992 uh, NRHA Futurity at Brett Stone. That's the main, that's the, I think I started watching random Futurity tapes in America in 1991. Um, the year before, I think Doug Mulholland won it on that silver anniversary. And the next year, Boominick pretty much just changed it. So tell me about, from 1992 onwards, tell me how you went from AQHA, Super Horse, AQHA World Show, in and then started focusing more on the reigning or how'd you get into the nrha futurity what year did you first show there what made you want to do it tell me how that transition happened well i, I think it was 91 i started going there did you go watch or go compete no i went and showed there okay and i took a horse that kim dooley mm -hmm. kim Mulestetter, yes her dad owned okay and i'd shown him at the snaffle bit futurity and i was reserve champion the snaffle bit on him I took him, now he's three. I took him to the world show and showed him in the junior cow horse straight up in the bridle and won the junior cow horse on him. Okay. And then I took him to the rain and fraternity and he ran off on me. Okay. <laughs> so I kind of got a rude awakening. Okay. I kind of thought, okay, there's a line you got to draw in the sand. sand yeah. and you don't want to cross that. Yeah. And so I got a rude awakening there and I learned a great lesson there. What and was it? You don't want to overshow him before you go there. You so know? you really showed the shit out of him at the cow horse fraternity. Oh yeah, I mean yeah. he won. 
I don't know, 75,000 as a three-year-old being yeah. reserved there, you know? Yeah. And uh, then I won, and I remember Smokey Pritchett was one of the judges, and he, he came up, he says, I can't believe you showed that horse straight up in the bridle as a three-year-old. I went, yeah. why not? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, um, and he ran off with me. And then the next year, I was, when Boomernick went, I was kind of, it took the wind out of my sails yeah. a little bit there. Yeah. And so I had another gilding. I was running for the honor roll, which is the national championship. And I was in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. I remember it like- Oh man, you're you, a long way from Oregon. Oh God, yes. And JD and I were there and uh, I was running for the honor roll in the raining. And somebody called me that night and they said, or the next day and they said, you know, Boomernick won the rain infantry. Don't you feel stupid? And I said, well, I said, I'm really glad he won it, but I don't feel stupid. Yeah. Because we sold it, sold him for over twice what the rain infantry paid yes. at the time. Yes. You know? yes. So, I mean, Doug and I sat there and went, oh yeah, poor us. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Brett made a lot less money than we did yeah. you know, at the time. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, you know, it went there and then so I, no, you didn't show at the Rain Fraternity no, in 1992. I didn't show showed in 91. Did, mm -hmm. What about 93? 93, I took uh, Smartin off there. Mm -hmm. And um, so raining's peaking your interest a lot more as yeah. far as the fraternity horses. Yeah. Why? Did you see more money there, more opportunity to sell no, horses? No, it kind of pissed me off. You okay, know? you you had a point to prove. Yeah, I had a point to prove. There's nothing wrong with saying it. You no. had an axe to grind. You yeah, wanted it's to fine go. With, no, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to hold back. Believe yeah. me. Yeah. And so I took Smartin off there, and uh, I was reserve champion in the, I think they just had the intermediate and open then. Yes. And I was a reserve in both of them, and I won like 100,000 bucks. You know, okay. I'm thinking, wow, you know, yeah. this ain't a bad deal. Uh, Todd went with me, and I think he placed really high in, in both of them. And yeah. I mean, we won a lot of money on two horses. I think we only had two horses there, if I remember right. Yeah. And then the next year, uh, 94. I won the Rain and Fraternity. On, on Lena's Right On, On Lena's Right On, yeah. yes. I remember watching that, yes. Right, and that was, there was some very big ups and very big downs. Yes. You know, I was the high horse going in the finals. And uh, at that time, they seeded the finals, which- That's right, remind me about how they did that. Well, the high horse went, going in the finals went last. You, you won the spot of going last. Right, that's right. And uh, so- Which is an advantage, whether or not people really want to believe it or not, as a general rule, you can disagree with me, the later you go as a general rule is an advantage as opposed to early. Now, I'm not saying the horses can't win early. There's been horses that have won in slot number one before. Mm -hmm. But as a general rule, if you gave me a pick as a competitor, do I want to go first, do I want to go in the last five? I want to go in the last five. Yeah. And, and I'm, you're 100% right, it's really hard on your nerves. Yes. You know, especially when you haven't been there that much. Yep. And I had to sit there through that whole finals and just listen to score after score and, yeah. you know, just sit there and try not to, le try not to get on my horse too early. Yes. You know, I wanted him to have an, be fresh enough to go show and stuff. And, and I, I had, I don't know if I won both go-arounds, but I was the high horse going in yeah. anyway. And uh, I went in there and he jumped out of my first turnaround. Yeah, I thought it was a rollback, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he did. And I'm thinking to myself, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> do I give up now or do I just keep going? And I thought, you know what? There's no way I'm gonna quit. Yeah. And I went and he was an incredible rollback horse. He yeah. was incredible. You know, he was just lightning rollback. And uh, I just kept putting my foot down on the pedal. As hard, you know, it was gonna blow up or I was yeah. gonna be a superstar. Yeah. And I did win it, you know. And yeah. uh, it was a little controversial because a lot of people thought, well, you should have been slaughtered for that. Well, uh, you know, they did whack me pretty yeah. hard and I still made up for it. You yeah, know? and so, everything else. Yeah. You know?
That was pretty much So what did you, did you have to change anything in your training? When you started showing at the NRHA fraternity, did anything have to change in your training style to get there? Or you just got better horses or maybe nothing changed? Uh, I got better horses, you know. Yeah. I don't think anything changed because I grew up showing a lot of cutters and mm -hmm. stuff. So I was really comfortable in split reins. Yes. Which a lot of the guys from the West Coast had to figure out how to do that. Yep. And, but I was very comfortable because I showed so much in them, you know. And um, so it didn't bother me showing in split reins and stuff. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, in the year I won it, Todd that worked for me, Bergen, he won the intermediate too. That's correct. And um, so, I mean, we were, we had a great show. Yeah. I mean, it was a great show. So when you won the Futurity, did you get a lot of people wanting to send you to straight up Rainers at that point? What happened in your business model? Yeah. Yeah, my business, it went up, you know, and a lot of people wanted to send me horses and stuff like that. But specifically um, for Rainers is what I'm asking you. Did, did, did the disciplines yeah. change? Rainers and cow horse. Mm -hmm. They both, both stuff, you know. I mean, it, uh, you know, I had just won my first Nalphabet Futurity three or four years or four or five years before that, I guess, you know. Mm -hmm. What was that horse called? Uh, God, don't do that to me here, you know. Okay. Uh, we'll think of him later. Yeah. Um, I can't think of it now, but uh, Smart Little Cowboy. Okay. Name was Smart Little Cowboy. And um, and he was owned by the first free agent of baseball. Okay. And um, so it was, he was great to ride and yeah. stuff, you know. Yeah. And then I went on and cut on him and stuff, and he won a lot. And, but, uh, and from there on, I started showing more rainers, uh, more cow horses, less of everything else. Less of the roping, less of the pleasure. Yeah, and, and I always kept my finger in it because I love to rope, and it's kind of my relaxation. Mm -hmm. I never, you know, for a while it was part of my business, and yeah. I, I tried to kind of take that out of my business and make it my relaxation. Yep. Uh, and it turned into being, when they came up with the world's greatest horseman, it turned into be a great asset for yeah. me, you know. Yeah, because you already had so much experience doing right, it. Right, you know, yeah. and uh, yeah. so that was good. See, back in the days when you were, um, you know, entering them in the cow horse futurity and then, you know, go, you know, paid by chick is one that comes to mind. You know, I don't know if you won the snaffle bit or you were third in the third, snaffle third, third in both the, of them. Third in the snaffle bit. And then two months later, so for people who don't know, the snaffle bit fertility is, you know, early October, okay? And the rain and fertility is, you know, towards the end of November or middle mid-November. There's not much time there. No. And one one's involving two hands and a snaffle and you're working cows and doing three different events. And then two month, less than two months later, you're straight up one-handed in split reins riding a three-year-old against the world's best horses that are only trained for reining. Mm -hmm. It's extremely hard to do. It is really extremely hard, to do. hard yes. to do. And it takes a hell of a horseman and a hell of a horse and a hell of a training program to pull that shit off. Right. I liked it because no, but very few people really, correct me if I'm wrong, the only people I really know that were doing it back then was you and Todd. Unless Randy Paul was doing it, no. I don't remember a lot of people. And Todd Crawford. And Crawford was doing it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Doing it you know, very you know, two or three people were doing it out of hundreds and hundreds of trainers all over the country. So I just thought it took a lot of balls and and had my respect. And I suppose it comes back from you know my mentor Ian Francis. He's won the Rain and Futurity five times, Cut and Futurity three times, did Pleasure Horses, did it all of that all-round great horseman mm -hmm. that could do it all. 
And by this stage, 1994-95, most rain and horse trainers are specialising by now. Yes, you know, they they've are. got a barn full of just straight-up rainers. Yeah. They don't have to ride rope horses Very to make so. a living. They don't have to take in pleasure horses. They can only focus on one sport, right. which, again, gives you a major edge because mm -hmm. that's all your thought process is. Right. And a lot of people don't know it, but I showed Lena's right on it to snaffle bit for 32. Yes. And I was, I fell going down the fence. Okay, he slipped and fell over. Yeah, and they, I made the finals on him, and then they reviewed me after that and took it away from me. Oh, truly. So, and I'm not so sure he couldn't have won both of them. You yeah. Know? He maybe just, he could have. He was just that talented. He was that talented. But yeah. uh, paid by check was, he was cool. Yeah. He was, he was really cool. Yeah. I mean, he was, if you thought it, he did it. You had to be a little careful on him. Yeah. You know. See, one thing I think that you and Todd changed in NRHA, so Boominick changed the industry in the way that he was collected and broke. I, I think what people don't realize about Boominick, and really, you, to me, you brought that Boominick look within reason to all the horses you brought to the Reign of Futurity. Right. It was a West, you know, for people who don't know, there was kind of like an intellectual battle going on. You got the East Coast Rainers that in layman's terms for people listening was big loose rain, nose poked out, neck up. You know, when you look at the first NRHA bronze trophies, it's pretty shitty. The horse's nose is stuck out in the air, like oh. it's rooting towards the sky. Mm -hmm. Horse's neck's up, back's hollow, and the horse is skating on its back feet, mm -hmm. you know, and you came in with a completely West Coast, you know, so then the West Coast look for trainers and cow horse trainers and rein and trainers is the opposite. They're up in a romel, they're bridled up, round back, hind feet deep underneath them in a stop. It's a completely different look. Mm -hmm. So up till then, East Coast was kind of dominating reining, wouldn't you say? Up until 1992, oh, East Coast was the, was the style. When Boominick came in and Brett Stone and a horse you trained basically said, West Coast boys are here and we're going to do some shit. Mm -hmm. And you came in with that, that round collected look, which changed the entire industry, in my opinion. The other thing that changed from, I think, you going to show at the Rain and Futurity, and, and, and not just you, but Todd, and Todd was, you know, your uh, apprentice and you taught him, is that you changed the rollbacks. Mm -hmm. Up until then, in my opinion, the rollbacks were really shitty in NRHA. They were U-turns. Yeah. Let's just call it what they were. Yeah. The horse would run down there and stop. By the time you turned the horse around, it was six to eight feet to the left or the mm -hmm. outside of its slide tracks. Sure. That's what a rollback was. It was right. just basically a screaming U-turn. When you came in and you'd run down there and stop, and then you'd lay a rein on it, and that son of a bitch would do a 180-degree turn on its ass and leave on the exact same tracks it came in on, everybody went, fucking wow, how did that happen? Sure. You, you know what I mean? Now, to you, it probably felt like an average day at the office. What do you think people thought of that when you started doing that? What were the comments you heard? Well, I had a lot of trainers come and stay with me. Yeah. And uh, they couldn't figure out what I was doing, and I thought it was pretty simple. I yeah. mean, I worked the flag, I worked cattle on all my horses, yeah. and all it was is a cutting horse move. Yes. I went from right to left and went across, you yeah. know? So it was the same thing. I took it for granted because I didn't think it was that big a deal. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think when we all got to the Rain and Futurity, I think the East Coast and the West Coast combined. Okay. And I think we came up with a better horse. For everybody. For everybody. Yeah. And the East Coast was way ahead of us at the time. But In we, what way? They'd just been around a long time. Okay. You know, they did a lot. They knew what they were doing. And we just kind of were going, wow, we're going to go show at the Random Fraternity, yeah. you know? And, uh, but uh, 
What do you think the East Coast style and trainers gather, gain from the West Coast coming to the reign of fertility and vice versa? Uh, well, our horses are a lot, were a lot broker. Yeah. Uh, Bill when you say broker, broker in the face, broken the period, body. Period. Yeah. Uh, Bill Horn came over to my stalls at one of those first years I was there, and he sat down on a bale of hay with me and talked to me, and um, he said, you know, before you started coming to the Rain and Fraternity, if I could get both leads changed, I could have a shot at making the finals. Yeah. And I, I was in awe. I was just in awe. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like, you're kidding me. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was being very honest yeah. about it, you know, and stuff. And, uh, and you know, we brought the the mechanics of the lead change in there, you know, and... The way, more of the Western pleasure lead change. Slow, hip first, Western change, riding and lead stood change up straight. Yes. Before Position. that, it was more of a chuck them over there. It was run to the yeah. right and then rein them to the left and hope the fuck they change, correct? Exactly. Like a big figure eight. Exactly, yes. Yeah. And uh, and Bill said that too. He yeah. said, he said he just, uh, you know, he went one way and he'd just sperm in the belly and go the other way. Yeah, yeah. and hope <laughs> so, the horse changed. And I was, yeah. I kind of went, oh God, I don't think I can do that. You know? What do you, so what do you think the West Coast gained from the East Coast style? Or did you gain anything? When you started showing back there, did you make any adjustments to the way your horses rode or were trained when you watched the East Coast trainers? Well, I think they had the speed control on them better than we did. Okay, you know, running I mean, on a loose rein? Yeah, and they, they knew how to go big and fast and small and slow. and. We didn't have that much of that because our circles in the West Coast were just kind of the same size and speed yes. at the time. So we learned that from them, you know. Yep. Um, I think the East Coast horses in the front end were looser than ours were. Ah, we stopped really hard, but they went farther, you know. Yep. So we kind of added that in. We kept our stopped hard, but loosened it up as we went. Yeah, loosened the front end up the way they'd pedal. Right. And uh, so it's just things like that. But I think it was just a melting pot. That's mm -hmm. all it was. You know, it was a melting pot of the East and the West. And when it came out and when it was all over with, even today, uh, we have a better, you know, horse out there. Yes, better, we better do have a better event. horse. We do. There were some trainers, uh, not going to mention names, but they couldn't make that change. They couldn't blend mm -hmm. the two together. Mm -hmm. So unless you did get it blended, you weren't going to win, correct? If you True. were going to be straight up West Coast, you know, proppy on the front end, even up a drag its ass mm -hmm. and and really bury its ass in the ground, but only slide three feet and be bad with its front feet, sure. you weren't gonna mark. Right. You know, or the opposite, if the horse slid, you know, 35 feet, but pee-hearted about it, you still weren't gonna win. Mm -hmm. You know, so you had to adapt if you were gonna be competitive. Right, exactly. And, and you know, it was, uh, there was a lot of people from the West Coast who went there once, twice, never went back. Yeah. You got know. their ass handed to them and said, fuck this, I'm not yeah, coming back. Exactly. Yeah. And there was a lot of guys that were East Coast style that, could, like you said, couldn't make the change. Yes. That had won a lot. A hell of a lot. You know? Yes. It some could, big time trainers that, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's probably a fucking bounty on your head, Bob, because after Boominick. Oh, there is, believe after me. After Boominick and you, and, and, you know, obviously Brettstone rode him, but after, after you guys, you basically put out of business a handful of West, uh, East Coast fucking trainers. Let's just be honest. Yeah, Meaning probably. that they couldn't make the change. Mm -hmm. You, it was such a dramatic change. The next five years of that fraturity, when trainers realized if they bridled these horses up and collected them and pulled on their face and squeezed them in their belly with their legs and got them round, mm -hmm. they could stop better. They could turn better. They could change leads better. If you weren't willing to do those things, you couldn't be competitive anymore. That's true. And there's a handful of guys that, that again, I'm not going to mention names, that they just quit doing. They couldn't can be competitive. They pretty yeah. much got out of the business yeah. in, in, in more or less. Oh, yeah. 
So and you I, had to adapt. Yeah, I, you know, between John and Todd and myself, we pretty much dominated it for about five years. Yes, you know? yes, and, uh, yeah. And you're right, there was some of them that, that couldn't make the change, which you see that in any industry. Yes. You know, it's yep. not unusual. What do you think was the advantage that you think bringing your snaffabitos to the right infaturity? I don't think there was one. Uh, you think it was a disadvantage? Uh, or just tough? It was, it was really hard. Yeah. You know, I, I think that probably the advantage of doing it was I had to get them broker earlier so they were broker when they went to the snaffle bit mm -hmm. more than anything yep. than just going to the rain and fraternity. Because, I mean, like I was working on putting, getting them one-handed before then, you know, so I was up to date when I got to the rain and fraternity. Yeah, know? because after the cow horse fraternity in October, when that show's over, you're pretty much just trying to train him as a straight rainer. They don't even see a cow. Yeah, you've, got, six, you've there, got about six to seven weeks to fix every, you know, get everything working. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I mean, like, I think I need my head examined, you know, for trying it. Well, it's funny. You don't see it anymore, for, I no. think, for several reasons. Because back in those days, you guys were bringing a lot of cowbred horses to the rain and fertility. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the rain and trainers would go down to the, the cut and fertility sales and pick up, you know, quote, unquote, cut and horse rejects or cut and bloodlines and taking them home and making them rainers. And in some ways it worked well, mm -hmm. um, but you don't see that anymore. You don't, with all the NRHA nomination programs and so forth, you, you know, with, with nominating stallions, sure. you don't even see, you don't, it's hard for those cutting bloodlines to do. Yeah, it is. To, to even compete in them. That's why you don't see it anymore. Plus, I also think personal opinion now, you give me your opinion, the other thing that's changed dramatically in the reigning world in the last 10 years, well, maybe 15, is they're running these horses in these circles wide open now. I mean, they are hauling ass. Yeah. Well, those cowbred horses, one thing I've noticed, because I'm trying to do the cow horses now, is they're kind of feely some bitches. They're hot. Oh, yeah. You know, when you're right, when you've got a, a cowbred horse, they notice every sign on the arena. They notice a fly lands on the damn rail. They're hot. They're mm -hmm. feely. And when you start to gallop these some bitches, they get a little warm on you. And and the rainers now, you know, Doug, you always, Doug Carpenter always used to say, you want rainers to be sleepy-eyed and lazy, and you want cow horses and cutters to be bright-eyed and feely. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the cow horses bloodlines could work anymore in the rain, and just because they are so damn feely that unless you were drugging the shit out of them to go show them, you know, you couldn't probably run that fast and still keep them mentally together. Do you agree or disagree with no, that? No, I agree with it. Uh, you know, I think I think Chick's Magic Potion was the last one to do both Yeah, events. he was, yes. Yeah, Chick's Magic Potion, you won the Cowboys maturity on him. 203. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he was the last one to do both. He won the Cowers Fraternity, and he was 10th at the Rain and Fraternity. But he was a soft-minded horse, though, wasn't very, he? Very, very much Quiet, so. soft, humble, lazy. You know what I mean? I, I remember walking out of the arena on him thinking to myself, you know, that was so much fun. I want to just turn around and cut, go back in and do yeah. it again. He was that good, and, you know, every step he was with me. Yeah. And very few of those cow horses that way. I mean, like, paid by chick. I mean, when I walked out of the arena, I thought, whew. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and he was a great horse. Yeah, because he was so feely. Yeah, he was. You so fought feely. the wrong direction. That son of a bitch was moving. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. so I so style wise, the reigning bloodlines uh, I've got you know numb are in my opinion, and and remember, you know, for people listening, reigners are completely dictated to. So yes. you're not asking them to think for themselves. Right. You're asking them to do what you tell them. 
cow horses and cutters is a combination of the complete opposite is you want them to think for themselves you want them to to make decisions based on what you've trained them to do etc yep. i personally would love to go show one at the snaffle bit and then two months later go show it at the rain fraternity just for my own personal horsemanship goals i'm sure. going to go do that one day whether or not i get a good score or not is irrelevant to me just to have the balls to go do that yeah. you know todd bogan did it on chick please you yeah. know he he didn't win the snaffle bit where, where is he in the snaffle bit he was bit? first and second first on the snaffle bit he was second at the snaffle bit and on first, chick please yeah on, and first at the rain and, and first yeah he did it on chick please and uh that might be the last horse i remember that other than other than paid by um uh what was he? chick's magic Post. chick's magic Post. that might have been the last horse i remember it being done on but it was just cool because it's just a it's such a difficult thing to actually pull off to yeah. get done did you notice the horses that you started showing as just straight up rainers did they lack anything that you didn't like? That the fact that you weren't combining the cow horse with the reining and you were just taking it straight to the reining, did you notice they lacked anything you didn't like? Did they feel any different? I don't think they were as broke as my cow horses were. Okay. And I had to do more things on my cow horses to get them as broke. Yep. That broke, you know. Yep. I mean, they, they were broke and everything else. Um, I just don't think they were as broke as the yep. cow horses. Yeah. 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 See Clinton Anderson and his Down Under Horsemanship Method live. Order tickets now for the Walkabout Tour in Conroe, Texas, November 4th and 5th. For ticket information, visit downunderhorsemanship.com. So let's change subjects here a little bit and the fact that the thing that I think you're known for, for several things, but a couple things stand out in my mind, is obviously being the trainer that that brought the West Coast style to the NRHA and being able to show at the Snaffle Bit Futurity and be competitive and win it and the Rain and Futurity and AQHA, etc. Um, but you're also extremely well known for bringing on young talent, mm -hmm. guys and girls, but mainly guys, mm -hmm. that under your tutelage, under your guidance, under your mentorship, went on to do great things. You know, Todd Bergen is one, for example, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Under you, he he won the, the limited or intermediate reign and fertility under you. Mm -hmm. The next year came back under you, won it on to, uh, Today's My Lucky Day in 1995, right. etc. So to me, what stands out in my mind that I want to ask you about how you got like this, why you did it, etc. I tried to get a job with you. You would yep. never remember, but I tried to get a job with you in 1997 when I flew over from Australia to America. Before I even left Australia, you were the guy I wanted to go work for. And and the reason why is obviously you were winning. Obviously, you were very good at your job. But as an assistant trainer, because remember, back in these days, I was a horse trainer and wanted to be a horse trainer, sure. not a clinician, is I knew that if you got in somebody, if you got in your barn and you were willing to work hard enough and sacrifice and be good enough and, and pay your dues and stay there several years, you were going to get to go show. And the guys underneath you, not only did they get to go show, but they did extremely well. You let them ride some really fucking good horses. Yep. You know what I mean? You know, one in particular, I remember hearing gossip around the horse industry that, you know, Bob Avila fucked up and and, and how would he be so stupid to let Todd Bergen win the reign and fraternity on a horse that came into his barn? Today's my lucky day. But you looked at it the complete opposite and, and you talk about why you did that and why you thought that was such a smart move. Well, there was a couple parts there. You know, I figured that if I could get my customers and the public to accept the people that work for me. Yeah. I could haul twice as many horses, you know, yep. it wouldn't, it would take a little of the pressure off of me. 
I didn't have to get every one ready to show, yep. you know? And, uh, and I always felt that if the kids worked hard enough and they put the time in and stuff, they deserve to show the horses. Yes. You know? And I mean, Todd is the one, I, I'm not gonna tell you I could have won on Today's My Lucky Day. Yep. Todd did a great job on him and- uh, Worked his ass off. He worked his ass off and he was the one. And I, Tim McQuay walked up to me at the World Show and he was the one that told me, yeah. asked me if I was out of my mind. blanking mind. Yeah for letting that kid show it. And I said, well, that kid trained it, that kid's gonna show it. And yeah. he just sh shook his head and walked off, yeah. you know? But see, that's the difference. It took, a lot, it took a lot of balls and character on your end. But see, to me, it was a great marketing strategy mm -hmm. because young guys like me, Mm -hmm. Todd Bergen and, and you know John Slack and, and there was a lot of other guys that came through there were bait. They mm -hmm. were advertising for you. Because yeah. young assistant trainers, they want to go work for the trainer that's winning yep. and they want to go work for the trainer that at some point we get to go show. Right. At some point we get to sit our ass on that horse and walk in that show pen and go win. Now when I called you, you didn't have a job available right. for me, so timing's everything in life and sure. so forth. But But... I don't know of any other trainer that I can think of, and maybe you can think of one, uh, that really just had the uh, self-confidence to go do that. Most trainers that I've known, not mentioning names, but there's one in particular, he has a reputation for letting those guys get right up to the trainer's level, and then right when they're about to beat the trainer, they either get fired or they quit or something magically happens. Mm -hmm. You were never, you had enough self-confidence that you, you took it as a pride of honor when your assistants beat you. It, it was an honor for you, and I truly believe it was, because they were a tutelage of you. You know what I mean? They were a replica of you. Mm -hmm. You took it as a badge of honor. Most trainers' egos couldn't handle it, where they took it as a slight or a slap in the face that their young apprentice beat them. Tell me how you felt like, what, you know, why, how you came up with thinking like that. Because it is unique, Bob, you got to admit that. Yeah, it is. And and it was, I knew that if I could let those kids win yep. and ride and show, I would get other kids after that. Yeah. You know, like. Because you are known for having the greatest assistant trainers. When you were absolutely. in your peak. You and know, I'm with, proud of it. When you, when you know, there was probably a 20 year run that you were really in your peak. You mm -hmm. were extremely competitive for probably a 20 year period. And, and, and I don't mean that disrespectfully 20 no, years, but on a national level and the snaffle bit cow horse reigning, et cetera. You were on top of your game for 20 friggin' years, long time. Mm -hmm. yeah, but long time. the big, uh, one big secret to that was you made sure the hired help you had were friggin' awesome. Yeah, and you know, I I was a road warrior. Yeah. I went, I showed a lot. Yeah. And one of the big secrets to my successes was I had people at home that were really capable of doing it. Yeah, keeping the fort going. It's right, you know, because I mean, a lot of them you don't even want them on your horses, you know, yes. when you're gone. And. Um, and my help at home, when I got home, the horses were better than when I left. Yes. You know, so they were very capable of being on their own at the time, but they wanted to learn and they wanted the opportunity to show good horses and I gave them the opportunity, you yeah. know. They had to pay their dues, they had they, to work absolutely. hard. Absolutely. You know, the other thing I remember is most of your really good people that came through your barn, on average, they were there five, six years. Yeah, they were. You know what I mean? Just like Bobby Smith was on the podcast a couple of months ago and he said, you know, if you want to be a great trainer, go work for a great trainer and commit to five years. Mm -hmm. Commit to starting at the Very bottom true. and stay in five years to learn your craft, mm -hmm. learn your industry, and you can get to the top. Yeah. You know what I mean? So to me, it made you look good. It made you look very confident, but it also gave you a, um, 
you know, recruiting. You were recruiting the next generation of horsemen to go make you money and walk under you mm -hmm. because they wanted to go show the Avila brand. Yeah, very true. You know, I don't see a lot of people uh, have done that since you, yeah. to be perfectly honest. And you know, right after Todd and John went on their own, I got Donnie Brecker, I got uh, Dwayne Latimer. Yes. You know, and that was all because of the way I treated those guys. That's correct. And they all, you know, when Dwayne came to me, he, Dwayne wanted to come learn how to change leads like the West Coast people change yeah. leads. And and I've always been a complete freak about changing leads, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just really into that. And um, and Dwayne, uh, he had a reserve world champion Western rider. I don't know if anybody knows that. No. Yeah, he, he was reserve world champion in Western riding, you know. So, he, I mean, he learned it and got better, yeah. you know. I tell you, there is somebody's name that just popped into my head, and I want to know if you agree or disagree with this, that I think had a very similar mindset to you with self-confidence, bringing on young apprentices and letting them go show and win is Loomis. Yeah. Loomis had a lot of good people over the years. Mm -hmm. Dwayne Latimer was one of them, his brother Dean, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? There was a lot of great horsemen that went through Loomis's ranch that stayed many years. Yes, they did. Many years, mm -hmm. anywhere from five to 10 years, but Loomis wasn't scared to let him go show. No. Loomis wasn't scared and to let Loomis him go Loomis was win. at the point in his life, he didn't want to show a lot at the time. Good point. And those kids were getting to show, you know, yep. and he was at home, you know, making a fortune breeding mares and stuff and yes. selling babies and things like that. So it, it was it But was it, that was a name that popped into my head mm -hmm. just and I'm thinking, okay, what other great horsemen was out there that really understood the importance of letting your young people develop right. their skills and be good? Well, you know, I got uh, Dean his job with Bob mm -hmm. because Dwayne came to me and he wanted to learn the West Coast style and Dean wanted to go learn the East Coast style. Yep. So I called Bob up and told him about Dean and, yep. you know, Dean was great with Bob, you mm -hmm. know, so. Yeah, many, many years together, mm -hmm. and a lot of success, etc. Yeah. And yeah. I, th I think to keep good help, you've got to give them, you got to throw them a bone. Yeah. They've got to be able to go show some, and mm -hmm. and like, uh, you know, I always let the kids show up there in Oregon. We had rain and fraternities up to little ones and stuff, and I always let them go, take a horse and go to that stuff, and, yeah. you know, and so, and it kept them all happy, yeah. you know. Yeah. Talk about the business model part of it as far as, you know, to my knowledge, you always tried to keep a relatively modest sized barn, you know, anywhere from 25 to say 35 head of horses in training, especially in Oregon mm -hmm. before you moved to California. Tell me why you kept the barn, because now a lot of rain and horse trainers, even cow horse, but especially rainers, they might have friggin' anywhere from 50 to friggin' 80 head of horses in training. Or more. Or more. Mm -hmm. Why did you keep your business model smaller? Was it by design? Yes, it was by design. Tell me why. I always felt that you had to have a person for every eight head of horses to do it correctly. One trainer, you mean? One guy riding them? Maybe one guy saddling. Mm -hmm. But you had to have a person for every eight yep. head of horses. And uh, to do a good job. And, you know, if you had one you needed to ride twice a day, yep. you could ride it twice a day, yep. you know, and stuff. I never thought numbers were the answer to it. Now. That's just my thoughts. Yeah. A lot of people like the numbers. They do very well with them. That's up to them. Yeah. You know? It just didn't work for me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I felt that I hated going to the house at night and not completing everything I was doing that day. Yeah, not feeling like you gave it 110%. Right. And when I went to California, I had 54 head in training or something, and I never got done. Yes. Never got done. I had lots of help, but we still never got done. Yeah. And I got kind of defeated when I was doing that. Yes. You know, I mean, it was like... You know, how can you go to the house when you're not done? And I mean, you run out of 
time and yeah, energy you've already been up sixteen else, hours, yeah. You know, and uh, so it was. That was a big part of it, right there too. Well, I, I think that that they not having enough numbers to choose from is an Achilles heel. Mm-hmm. But having too many to choose from is just as big as Achilles' because they sleep, slip through the cracks. Because because the good ones slip through the cracks, right. and one one guy having eight horses and one needs ridden twice, one needs ridden three times that day is being bad, naughty, whatever. He's got time to do it. Mm-hmm. Where most of the trainers that have got really really large barns, they might be lucky to get to them all once for Christ's sake. Yes. Let, let alone double up and get to them two or three times. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or do whatever it takes to get the job done. Um, so I just wondered, you know, you know, again, you can have a numbers game and it'll work. There's been a lot of trainers in different oh, industries yeah. that have won the fraternity or won a world show with with numbers. But again, you know, it doesn't mean always that the best one won that year. There might have been one that was better, but it didn't get the attention that it could have got because it just got lost in the crowd. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. I agree 100 percent. Yeah. You know, and everybody their own. I mean. Like you say, there's a lot of them that make it work. Yes, I'm just not one of them. Yes, yes. Know? I think it. Dep- I think. I think for the trainers that, in my opinion, from the outside looking in, that do have large numbers, that it does work for. There's a few common traits that I see. They're number one, not perfectionists, like me and you. Like mm-hmm. they, it, 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 things can be a little sloppy around the barn. The way the barn looks, the way the barn horses uh, horses sure. look, trucks and trailers not clean. They're a little bit. They can just go under the radar and not give a shit. Mm-hmm. Where when you drove into your ranches and mine, it, it better look like a golf course. Exactly. It better look like a golf course because that's the first impression a customer has when they drive in your ranch and the fucking gate's off the hinges oh, and yeah. you're trying to sell a $200,000 horse. It don't look real good. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there's some common traits that I've noticed and I think that's probably how they can get away with large numbers is they kind of have a little bit of a don't give a fuck attitude. Yeah. And it, it's probably easier for them to sleep at night. But again, yeah. each to their own. There's different ways of doing it. You Absolutely. know what I mean? What do you think? Um, what do you think training the all-round horses brought to your snaffle bitters or your reiners? You know what I mean? Did you bring things from the pleasure industry and add it to your lead departure, say in reining, for example? You know, yeah. You know, tell me anything that you think the crossover, the the advantage you had of doing multiple events. What did you think that did for your reiners or cow horses? I th- I think it was almost all of it. I mean, uh, when I came, I showed a lot of halter horses, a lot of pleasure horses. So, when I was looking at cow horses and reiners and stuff, I was always pretty critical about the way they moved. Yep. You know, and there's a lot of reiners that don't lope very good. Yep. And I think they're getting better now, but at that time, you could find a lot of them that were pretty trashy. Yep. And uh, so I think I, I stressed on that. I had the the pretty of the halter horse that I brought in there. Mm-hmm. You know, my horses were, try, I tried to make them prettier than the rest of them, you know, or tried to find prettier horses. Yes. Um, you know, and every, you know, I've heard people go, you know, pretty is pretty does, and I think that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you go and find one that's pretty and one that's ugly and, and they do the same job the same way, pretty yes. is always going to beat them. Yes, it know? is. And uh, so I think that those were the things. And like, um, I brought the detail of the halter horses in there. Mm-hmm. In other words, the ears clipped, you know, I mean, everything Feet looking painted, perfect. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I did, I did that. And, and it was just something that I was used to doing every weekend at the horse shows, yes. you know. Yeah. And I don't think people had seen that. Yet. One thing I noticed 
um, and I don't know if you did or not, but I noticed a difference in the styles between East Coast and West Coast. And I don't, like I said, it's all been one melting pot now. Yes. Okay, so I wanna, wanna say that right now. After you know, 50 years of breeding reining horses and cow horses, it, a lot of it's melted together. But uh, fuck it, I'm controversial, so I'll just say it. I think the West Coast trainers and the West Coast mentality of, of that last minute detail, every detail, I think they doctored the horses better too. Took better care of their legs, took better care of the horse itself. Just tighter hair coats, clipping, just everything in general was, it was a horse show. Right. And where I, I in my career, I've seen on the East Coast a lot, they're a little sloppier about some stuff. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Hair coat, weight on a horse, how it's clipped. Mm -hmm. You know, a little bit, just a little bit, just kind of don't give a fuck. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Kind of oaky kind of mentality a little bit. Now, obviously in today's market, I don't think that's there now because because it's so competitive now, would you agree, Bob? You're not gonna go win the rain and fertility when your horse is 300 pounds underweight. You're not gonna go win when you, you haven't paid attention to every last detail. Yes and no. Okay, tell um, me what. I think they're starting to revert back now, especially in the cow horse. Okay. You know, I mean, for a while there, I mean, the horses were looking like big time show horses. Yes. You know, the, they were done up like pleasure horses and stuff like that. Manes, tails. Manes and tails and stuff like that. The cow horse, you know, you don't hardly ever see any silver saddles anymore, things like that, which is fine. It's yeah. not a big deal. Yeah. But I mean, some of them are dirty and yeah. things. And that's the way it was when I got into it. Yes. You know, and nobody knew the difference. Well, I came in there and I mean, you know, I had silver on my horses and the tack was really clean and the boots were really yeah. white and, you know, stuff like that. Um, and I see a little bit of that going out of there now. Yes. Uh, more so in the cow horse industry? More so in the cow horse than yeah, the Yeah, not range. so much the range, yeah. yeah. And the rainers, they have always been better about taking care of their horses, yes. you know. And, uh, and I don't know about what they're thinking, but I know that the soundness part of it is a big deal. Yes. You know? I, mean, I remember so. reading articles from you as a kid, and one of your big deals was if you were going to ride them hard, you'd be sure shit better take care of them hard. Yes. If you were going to ask them for their life. life you better be willing to sacrifice your life and take care of them, yeah. doctor them, take care of their legs, ice them. Mm -hmm. If you're there at one o'clock in the morning icing their legs down, you're gonna be there. Yeah, absolutely. Where did you get that mentality from? Was it taught to you as a kid, from your dad, from Tony? Where did you get that mentality from? You know, I think Dale Livingston's the one that really said it in my mind okay. the most. Um, Dale was the kind that he, you know, he'd ride them pretty hard, mm. but he'd take them care of them just as hard, yes. you know? And I, I got to know Dale really well about the era I was got to know Doug. Yep. And um, and he uh, he kind of put that in the back of my mind, mm -hmm. really. Yeah. You know. And I I've always, I mean to this very day, I mean like I'm a freak about taking care of them. Yeah. You know? Wrapping their legs, whatever. Whatever it they need. Yeah. It doesn't matter. We just whatever they need. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. What do you see with the horse industry that's positive right now from a training's perspective and maybe what you see is a negative perspective? Meaning that, you know, we've got out of all-round horsemen and we're doing so much specialization. So for me, I think the negative of that is we're losing some all-round great horsemen. Like I know just in my, in my travels around the world, it's embarrassing to say, but I know multiple trainers that have won more than a million dollars in a particular discipline, they can't fucking load a horse in a trailer bolt. I'm mm -hmm. not joking. No, I know that. A unless they can drug the motherfucker, it ain't getting on. 
Yeah. If it won't stand still for the farrier, they have no fucking idea how to fix it. Mm -hmm. If you said to them, here's a three-year-old wild Mustang, I need you to catch it and saddle it, they literally would shit a brick. That to me is in horsemanship going backwards, in my opinion. Absolutely. Okay. Now, the flip side of that is, are the horses riding better today than 30 years ago? Yeah, a lot of them. They're cutting better. They're stopping better. They're turning better. Yeah, a lot of things have got better. But I think we've also lost some horsemanship. You agree or disagree? Oh, I agree 100%. I think we've gained more mechanics uh-huh. than we have horsemen. Explain um, what you mean by mechanics. Uh, mechanics are somebody that can do a lot and get a horse to do a lot and stuff, but they don't really care about longevity. They don't care about taking care of them quite the way, other way, you know? Yeah. Um, How long the horse lasts. Exactly. You know, and I, I mean, like, a lot of them, and a lot of them just have hired help taking care of them and stuff mm-hmm. and they don't pay attention to that stuff yeah the trainer the mechanic himself whatever yeah. you want to call them and uh you know nobody takes care of your horses like you do yeah like you know? like one of the things i love to do is i've i've just recently flip-flopped some of my training my day schedule so i get up at 4 30 and i normally go to the gym well i've changed that now and i get up at 4 30 and go straight to the barn mm-hmm. and i like to get to the barn an hour and a half two hours before anybody else because i get to walk up and down the barn aisle i get to check every horse mm-hmm. i get to go over their legs i get to look at what they're eating before anybody feeds them i like that and i've noticed when i got my ass in the barn before everybody else it was amazing how much shit I started catching. Sure. It's amazing how much shit when there's no distractions, cell phones not ringing, no texts, no radio, no nothing. Mm. When you just walk around an empty barn with the lights on as a horse trainer, you'd be shocked. I was at least shocked of how much shit was slipping under the cracks a little bit because when I got to the barn, I got on my first horse, started riding straight away. You're riding all day. You're talking on the phone. You're putting a deal together. You're hustling. You don't take the time just to walk through each horse's stall and get your hands on them because you're not saddling them anymore. You've got a groom doing that. You know, it's a numbers game. Um, that's kind of what you're talking about, correct? Absolutely. When yeah. did you try to do that yourself? Did you do it early in the mornings, late in the evening? When did you personally, when, when you were training horses, like to get that one-on-one time with that barn? Well, you know, the biggest thing I did, I think, was I wouldn't let anybody put boots or wraps on horses except me. Yeah. So every day I got ready to ride one. Somebody else might be saddling it for me and they might be tied in the stall or on yeah. the walker or whatever. But when it came to putting boots on, getting ready to ride them, I did it. Mm-hmm. And that way I could run my fingers down their front legs. Tendons. Myself, tendons. Yep. Feeling for heat. Yeah, because you know, let's face it, I don't care how good a help you have, they don't take care of them the way you take yes. care of them. You know, because yes. it doesn't mean as much to them as it does yes. to you. Yes. Uh, you know, Andrea Fapani is probably the best I know in today's market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not saying there's not other yeah. guys that are very good too, but yeah. Andrea for running a ship as big as his ship is, yeah. he knows every single horse and about every single horse there. You yes, know? he does. He is really good about that. Yes. You know? And I don't, there's days I don't know, you know, I mean, I see Andrea quite a bit and there's days I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he does I think the son of a bitch has got eyes in the back of his head. He's got a sixth sense. He, you could be on his ranch behind the barn, behind another barn, and doing something, and he knows what, you're, he doing. Knows what you're fucking doing. Yeah, yeah. He's got a sixth sense about him. Like me, I'm such tunnel vision. When yeah. I get to riding a horse, I don't see it. a bomb could go off to the right. I wouldn't yeah. even know it went off. He knows where everything is. Yeah. yeah, I know that my wife asked him to help her with her one-time mare when she was mm. showing her. 
we were at Random by the Bay, and she said, hey, would you watch my mare turn around or something? Mm. He goes, I've watched her. Mm -hmm. I know what she's doing. You know, and I mean, you kind of go, really? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, now he's, he's very good at that, you know. Yeah. And he is a true horseman. Yes. I mean, he really is. He takes really good care of his horses. Yes. And he does a lot of it himself. Yes. You know. And, Hands on. Yeah. Yeah. I tell you what, we're going to take a little break right now, Bob, and I've okay. got some more questions for you when we get back, mate. Sounds great. Clinton's grabbing a cocktail and we'll be right back. Get yourself one and enjoy this short clip. Of shit in a coffin. Oh, they want to drive a steel knife down a stupid fucking throat, and they talk about it quite often. Oh, yeah, this one here. This dude ain't no cowboy. Mark Berrick. You're right, Mark. I'm not a cowboy. Never said I was a cowboy. Actually, don't want to be a cowboy. I'm a clinician, and I'm a businessman, and I made a lot of money. That's what I was really good at. But cowboying, not my deal. There's a lot of cowboys out there, and I sure ain't one of them, mate. So, Bob, let's talk about the great people that have worked for you over the years, the young guys and girls that have trained horses under you. The horse training part is just one part of it. But you've right. always tried to instill... it. You, Great, there's a lot of great horse trainers that die broke. Let's just be honest. Exactly. Let's just call it what it is. And I've talked about that a lot. That's what the podcast is about. Making money, investing money, and trying to avoid being the great horse trainer that everybody respects, but you die alone in a single wide trailer and alcoholic. Let's just call it what it is, okay? And a lot of them do. And a lot of them do. Mm -hmm. So you clearly haven't done that. You've done well for yourself financially, etc. But where did you get that mindset from? Was it Tony that really started to instill that in you? Where did you get that? Or, or who scared you like, fuck, I don't want to die like that. Like what was a wake up call for you that I don't want to die a broke horse trainer? Well, I think a lot of my peers when I was a kid, yeah, uh, or the people I looked up to or whatever you want to call them. Yep. Um, I, you know, a lot of them did die broke and stuff, and they were great hands. Yes. They were great, great hands. And uh, a lot of them did end up that way. And I swore when I was young, I did not want to end up that way, you know? And uh, you vividly remember making a conscious decision. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, when I was getting started, um, you know, I was probably one of the first guys in the horse industry that had endorsements. Yes. I was not the first. No. There was some before me, you know, but I was one of the guys that is today. Yeah, had endorsements and stuff, and you know, I thought to myself, you know, if I can have endorsements, I can save more money, you know, and uh, things like that. And I tried to instill everybody that worked for me about using their head in the business end of it. And I'm not going to tell you that I'm I've made as much money as some of the other guys in the horse mm -hmm. industry but I think I've taken the money I've made and made it work better for me yes. than a lot of people have. You know? Yes. And, uh, and I swore that I did not want to end up broke in a single wide trailer. So you, try, you tried to mentor those people Absolutely. underneath you about how to put a horse deal together, what to do with the money, Absolutely. how to make more money out of it, correct? Absolutely. See, a lot of trainers want to hide that part from their assistants. Mm -hmm. I'm, the, I'm the same as you. I want to share it all. You Absolutely. Know, this is how I made the money. This is how I invested the money. This is what you can do. How are you going to turn two thousand dollars into four thousand? How are you going to turn four into eight? Right, and you know when when I started, there was, uh, you know, when I especially when I started doing clinics and stuff and doing DVDs mm. and well, they were videos when yeah. I started. Yeah, cheers. 
And I always said that uh, I would tell anybody anything for real. Yeah. Because when it gets down to it, there's only going to be one of you and one of me. Mm -hmm. You can't do what I do. I can't do what you do. Yeah. You know, not exactly the way you no, do it or not exactly the way I do it. So why hide it? You know, yeah. I did a clinic in uh, um, L.A. Equestrian Center the day it opened and another trainer and I did it together. And and he was going on about all this stuff. And, and when it was over with, I looked at him. I said, you know, that's not the way you do things. He goes, yeah, but the crowd loved it. Yeah. I don't want to do that. Yeah. I want to, you know, tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. Yes. You know, I had a uh, I had a magazine named Ride with Bob. I, I had it as a as very a popular young. I've still got all your copies. Yeah, very very yeah. popular, and uh, my editor was skimming money, so that's why it ended. But <laughs> no, you can relate a little of that oh, yeah, stuff. I've had you a few know, fuck me some up of the, the ass. up and down things you go through, <laughs> and uh, but I would have guest people come in there and do articles and stuff. And the one thing I told them, if it's not, if it doesn't work, don't say it. Yeah. I want it real. I want it to work. I want people to go home and go, hey, let's try this yeah. and have it work, you know, yeah. and stuff. Uh, that was a big part of it. And, you know, I was, I was always thinking about tomorrow. Yeah. I was always thinking about tomorrow. I wasn't just living in yesterday or living mm -hmm. in my dreams yeah. or, you know, reading my own press or yeah. things like that, you know. And um, so I... So the know, money aspect was a big deal that you've tried to mentor people on. Yes, very yeah. much so. Yeah. And, you know, I've always been big on, you know, I, li I like all the good things in life too, yes. you know, but I don't want to be stupid doing it. Yes. You know, I mean, I've had big fancy rigs and stuff, but they didn't necessarily have to be brand new rigs. Yes. I just took very good care of what I had. Yes. You know, and my That's one thing I always remember you during the years is your trucks and trailers were always clean. Yeah. Your barn was always clean. You know, I always say this, you can be poor, but still be clean. Yes, exactly. You can be poor, but you don't have to have trash on your lawn. And you can be rich and be a pig. Yes. Yes. You get what I'm saying? It doesn't Absolutely. cost a lot of money to stay clean. Yeah, it doesn't so being cost poor is not an excuse to be sloppy and poor. Exactly. Yes. And I, I agree that what you talked about is I see some of that in the cow horse. Wipe the fucking saddle down. It oh, don't it take much to get. You some, can take a towel and wipe it down. Wipe it down. Yeah. Knock the dust off it. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, you know, try to present. I might lose, but I sure as shit want to look good doing it. Yeah. Exactly. Does that make sense? Yeah. If I'm gonna, if I'm gonna lose, I at least want to look fucking good doing it, Bob. Yeah. yeah. I know. I hear you. You know. Well, when I was pretty young, I had a customer named Ken Austin. He owned ADEC Dental Supply Company, and any dentist you go to in the world has ADEC stuff in there. Mm -hmm. if you look at there. And Ken, he loaned me my first $5,000 to buy my very first horse trailer with. Yep. And I traveled a lot with him. We went a lot of places together, just him and I, and yeah. I, sh I showed horses for him. And he, he told me, he said, you know, when your rig's driving down the road, you're a traveling billboard for your business. Yeah. And people will pass it on the highway and go, wow, I'd like to have a horse in there, or I'd yeah. like to have a horse that came out of there or something. And he said, or you pass the rig and go, wow, how can you imagine our horse living, traveling in that? Yes. You know, and I never forgot that, you mm -hmm. know, and I, you know, the kids used to, when I was in Oregon, it rained a lot, of course, and they used to give me a bad time because the rigs, they were all spotless when we left the driveway. And they'd tell me before we got to I-5, we were like 35 miles off I-5 yeah. or something. They were going to be dirty. I said, I don't care. When we get in, we feel like we're winners and we're yes. ready to go. Everything, the horses are clean, the tack is clean, the trucks are clean, and we're ready to go be a winner. Yes. You know, and I never forgot that part, you know. Yeah. So. From from your boots being polished to what Everything. you were wearing to being starched up, etc. 
The other thing I remember a lot as a young adult watching you is you were the one of the first trainers that really, in my opinion, not a clinician, because John Lyons really was the first guy that really endorsed um, advertising, mm -hmm. you know, buying advertising. Sure. But you had great advertising campaigns over the years and really branded the horses you were riding and the studs and your whole program. Did that come instinctual for you or, because or, I don't remember anybody else sinking that kind of money into really understanding that you've got to spend money to make money? Um, I guess it did come kind of that way, you yep. know. Uh, you know, I had uh, Cam, is, Cam Brandon was yes. a big deal there and uh, she helped me with a lot of that stuff. And, and then I took and I had, you know, like four different studs at one time that were pretty big stuff. Mm. And I was trying to figure a way to make them so I could advertise them more, but not cost them anymore. Yeah. So I put two studs per page, yeah. you know, which you see a lot of now, yeah. you know. And you didn't see that then. And I figured we could spend the same money and advertise them twice as many places, mm -hmm. you know. And so we did that a lot, you know. And, uh, and my endorsements advertised me a lot yes. that I didn't have to spend my money doing. Yes. And they benefited from it, and I benefited from it, too, yes. you know. Both partnerships. Right. Too. And, you know, my endorsement deal, I'm really proud of it. I'm proud of my endorsements. I'm proud of the horses I produced. I'm proud of the people that work for me. Yeah. You know, and stuff. And I'm I'm really proud of the time I've had with my endorsements. You know, professional choice, I'm on 35 years with them. Nobody yes. has an endorsement yes. for 35 years, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, Cinch and, you know, I mean, all these places, you know, American Hats and Rio yeah. Mercedes Boots. I mean, I've had this stuff for 20 years and, you yeah. know, a lot of this stuff. And I just have always felt that it's a two-way street. You know, I don't sit there just with my hand out and go like that. Yeah. You know, I call them up and I have a LMF Feeds is a feed company that's mm -hmm. a, mainly a West Coast feed company. They never ask anything of me. Yeah. And I call them up about it every month and go, is there anything I can do for you? Yeah, you yeah. know, and, but I'm always trying to say, hey, what do you need me to do? You know, is there anything you need me to do? Mm -hmm. and, and most of them don't. Yeah, really Ian care. Francis has a as a as a famous saying. He always said, "If you put your if you put your customers' needs ahead of your own, you'll have a thriving business." Mm -hmm. and exactly. If, and if you put your customers' needs ahead of your own, you'll have a thriving business. Right. You know. Let's change subjects a little bit. If you could name the top three or four horses that, in your opinion, were game changers, either game changers for your career as far as getting you better horses. Or game changes as you as a horseman and what you learnt from that horse, what you took from that and duplicated it, what could you name? Three or four horses and what, let's talk about each one. Yeah, I probably can name, but I, I mean, I learned something from everything. Okay. Good, bad, and indifferent, you know. Um, paid by Chick was one of them, you know. What did you learn from Paid by Chick? What, did, what, did, what made that horse such a great horse? His energy. Mm -hmm. His talent, you know, he was he was extremely talented. He was extremely steady. Mm -hmm. You know, I had to learn how to get around the study part of him. Yep. You know, and I I didn't, you know, I didn't try and beat it out of him yep. or anything else. I just tried to figure out a way to get along with mm -hmm. him. You know, um, the major leaguer was really my first one. He was a freak of nature. Yeah. And to this very day, he could be the most athletic horse I ever rode in my life. So even even 30 years later, that oh, horse absolutely. could still be competitive. Absolutely, you know. Yeah. I mean, he was a freak. I mean, he mm -hmm. just, he did stuff that I didn't even, 
he was so far ahead of me at the time, I didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. So I just pet him and let him do it, you know. <laughs> I fear, you know. And um, and then uh, Chick's Magic Potion was probably probably m my favorite horse in my life, or yeah. one of my favorite horses. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was not as talented as some of the other ones, but he gave me 110% every time I yes. asked him. You know, I used to dig him holes that I didn't know if anybody could get out of, mm -hmm. you know, showing him and stuff. And he just, you know, I, I mean, I'd, I'd be a 210 out of the herd and he'd be a 228 in the rain work. Well, yeah. all of a sudden I'm back in the game. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And uh, things like that. Um, Brother White was one of my favorite horses, you know, which I still have, mm -hmm. Brother White. He's 27 years old now. And uh, I bought him and they said that he was supposed to be a cutter. He's out of a great mare. He's mm. by Smart Little Lena. And uh, they said that he gets stuck in the ground. He wasn't going to make a cutter. Well, I, you know, I'm thinking, hey, he stops that hard that he, he, you know, I'm thinking, I can handle that. Yeah. Well, I showed him as a three-year-old and I lost a cow on him at the pre-fraternity. I lost a cow on him, you know, at the fraternity because he got stuck in the ground. <laughs> but I, I liked him enough that once he learned how to handle his own power, yeah. I couldn't teach him how to do it. I couldn't put it in him, he had to learn how to do it. Mm. To control his own power, he turned into a superstar. He was a multi-time multi world champion. Yeah. He won 150,000 or something yeah. at the time. That's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Today it's a lot of yeah. money. And, uh, you know, so there was, I, and I learned something from all of them, you know. Um, yeah. But I, that's probably some of my favorite ones, yeah. you know. Yeah, but stick out in your mind. Mm -hmm. If you could go back, Bob, to a 20-year-old Bob Avila and sit yourself down now at your age and give yourself some advice, whether or not you would listen at 20 years old, because let's face it, at 20 years old, we're full of piss and vinegar and we think we know more than our parents and everybody else around us. But what would be some of the, the lessons that you would like to mentor yourself or say, hey, look out for this, try not to do this, do more of this or do less of this? What do you think you would say to yourself? Well, I think I caught myself as I was growing up, and I think you see this a lot. I was working so hard I wasn't making money okay. for a long time. Yep. You know, and uh, once I started thinking that there's a time to do this and a time to do that, mm -hmm. and separated the two as far as investing my money and being smart about things and mm -hmm. stuff, that's when I started really making money. But I don't know if I could have done that when I was 20. Yeah. Like you say, I mean, I was just, I was like a bull in a china cabinet. I was just, you know, if you tell me I couldn't do it, I was going to do it yes. anyway, just to prove you wrong. Yes. You know, so. Yeah. yeah. What would advice would you give to a young person right now <clears throat> getting out of high school, wants to be a horse trainer? In today's environment, what, what would be the top two or three things you would tell them to be successful? If they want to be Bob Avila, they want to be Todd Bergen, Andrea Fapani, what, what are your words of wisdom to them? Go find somebody they really, <laughs> they really respect and work for them and work for them for a while. Don't just, you know, it's so easy for today's kids and I've watched it and it's been like that for a long time. They can take and get a start and they can go out and have three horses in training and make more money than they can working for us. But that's probably where they're gonna stay. Yeah. You know, they might be making less but when they go out on their own, they're gonna make more by taking the time to do it. And you got to eat a lot of crow and you got to put up with a lot of crap, you know. Yeah. And I mean, there's going to be days that some of the trainers you work for have a bad day and they're going to take it out on you and everything else. Mm -hmm. I mean, I went through it all. I yeah. know that, you know, and I, I'm sure I did it to some of the kids yeah. that work for me, you know. Yeah. I mean, I know I'm perfect, but that's beside the point. <laughs> you know? So, but, um, 
you know, I, the the foundation is like anything that you put on a horse. Yeah. You know, your your foundation is a horse trainer, and the longer you stay with a you or me or Andrea or whatever, you get to know the industry better. The industry gets to know you better, mm-hmm. and you're accepted before you actually go out on your own. Yes. Now, when I did it, it was a dumb thing to do, and it worked. Yes. You know, but I'm not going to tell you I would have done it again. I'm not. I'm not sure it could even work in today's. It might not. You know, because not. without again, without mentioning names, I could think of 15 trainers off the top of my head that fucked up that whole. When do I go out my own thing? And 20 years later, they're still struggling. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? Andrea won the fraternity working for Todd and went out on his own. Yep. Same. Todd won the fraternity. The next year, he left you. Yeah. You know that's the fairy tale when you hang your own sign out. You just won the reign of fraternity and you say, I'm open for business. Mm-hmm. So that's obviously the best way to do it. But uh, if you don't time that right, I personally think that the biggest thing that we could give young people advice is, is you, you have to be able to work. You know, you're, you're a liability. When you show up to a trainer's barn, especially green, mm-hmm. not knowing much, you're going to fuck way more shit up than what you do produce yeah. for, for a while too. Oh yeah, and and until true. somebody sits down and invests the time into you, you're not going to get better. Mm-hmm. And the other flip side of this is, what trainer wants to invest time in you and pay you at the same time mm-hmm. if you're not going to stick around? If right. they think you're only going to be here for six months, you know what I mean? What do they want to hang around for? Yeah. What do they want to teach you for? Oh, yeah. So if you're willing to commit five, six years and show it through your actions, not your words. You're the first at the barn to get there. You're the last one to leave. Right. You know, you're the first one to do to offer to do the shitty jobs. That will eventually stand out. Do you agree or disagree? No, I agree with that. And you know, and I think one step farther is when you do go out on your own, you have to struggle to have a personal life too. Yeah. You know, and you have to keep that separate. Mm-hmm. You know, your working life and your personal life are two different things. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm fortunate enough now that Dana and I, my wife. Uh, we do a lot of different things together, mm-hmm. you know, and it keeps us fresh and motivated. You mm-hmm. know, we come back and we're fresh because we've gotten away from all that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, this industry can eat you alive, mm-hmm. you know, and it can eat your relationships. up. Oh, yeah. And um, and like I say, while it's doing it, you're working so hard that you're not making money. Yeah. You know, and I know that I uh, I was taught a long time ago that, you know, you need to. I was told that you need to make money while you sleep. Yeah. And that's what uh, you do with mm-hmm. your, you know, club, s- club yeah. and stuff like that. I do with my bit business, things like that, yeah. you know. And uh, I mean, like, I can be asleep and my bits are selling all over the world, you yeah. know. Yeah. And you're the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, is today, is today's, uh, is today, is the industry today, the Western performance industry, reining, cutting, cow horse, even all round horses, et cetera? Is today a good time for a young person to get into the business? Meaning that is the industry healthy in your opinion? If you want to be the next Bob Avila, you want to be the next Andrea Fapani, is it is it is as times now as good as to do it than ever ever before? Um, yes and no. Uh, yes, it's you know there's a lot of money out there. People are spending ridiculous amounts of money on horses, mm-hmm. you know. But there's a lot of competition for the same buck there too, yeah. you know. And I think that's part of, you know, when I was in Oregon getting started, 
I was one of the only guys up there. Mm -hmm. I was the first guy that was out of the state of California to ever make the Snaffle Bit Finals. Yeah. Nobody had ever made it before. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I had kind of the cream of the crop in mm -hmm. the Northwest. And, you know, like you, you move to Texas or something and you jump in a little pond with a lot of big fish. Yeah. You know, and they're all fighting over the same, you group know, of customers. group of customers and stuff like that. And, um, you know, so it's, it's, it's probably tougher to make it now, but there is more money in it while you're doing it. Yes. So the people that are willing to pay the sacrifice, pay mm -hmm. their dues, really, really hump it and get after it, there could be some more money there. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to be on here. You've been a, a great inspiration to me, you know, over the years. Of, uh, you know, I bought all your magazines. I watched all your videotapes that you've ever made. I studied them as much as I could. Um, and, and you've been a great mentor to me personally, even still today. You know, I'm learning the cow horse. I hire you two or three times a year to come watch my horses. You, you tell me what you like. You tell me what you don't like. You know, I send you my runs and so mm -hmm. forth. You've given your lifetime to the performance horse industry, and I want to thank you. And I'll thank you on behalf of all the young guys and girls that came through your establishment sure. over the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. Maybe some of them thanked you, maybe they didn't thank you, but I'll take the time to thank you on their behalf because you did invest tremendous amounts of time into young people and to trying to carry on the next generation sure. of horsemen. And I don't know personally of any horseman in the, at least in the reining and cow horse world that has influenced as many great hands as you have. I, there's been great hands that have come out of other barns, but they've sure. been one hit wonders. You know what yeah. I mean? And you don't see that trainer produce another great young person for a long time. You are mm -hmm. the one that consistently over 30 years produced great hand after great hand after great hand. So it's something I think all trainers should, should strive towards to do is, uh, my attitude was a great manager should try to outproduce themselves. Absolutely. If I'm going to manage somebody, Absolutely. I want people to be better than me. Yeah. Does that make sense? If I'm yes. going to manage them, I don't want to be threatened by them. I want them to be better yes. than me. I tell people right now, Jeff Davis and Kristen Hamaker, they're better than me. They got more drive. They got more energy. They, they're more charismatic. You know, outproduce yourself. Mm -hmm. I don't take that as a, as a personal insult. I'm proud of it. Oh, I am too. Proud I, of I'm that. proud of the people who have worked for me. I mean, yes. just as proud as the horses I've trained. I yes. mean, they're just, you know, when I see them win something, I, it makes me proud, you yeah. know. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and I mean it's it's something that it it, it makes you feel good. Yes, you know, I mean it yes. really does to see great people around you succeed. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Bob, cheers to you, brother. All right. Thank you so much for taking Take the time to come do this. You got it. Uh, uh, thank you for everything you do for the industry. And and if and if any young person sees you at a horse show, I'm sure you'll be willing to let them walk up and shake your hand, introduce them, and ask you a question or two because you're always about mentorship. Absolutely. Thank you, brother. Thanks. Appreciate you. You got it. Today's episode was filmed and produced by Intercut Productions, marketing by Stuart & Associates, and organized and administrated by Down Under Horsemanship. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button and leave a rating. Follow us and stay up to date on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. See you next time, mate. Cheers.